This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Thursday morning, everyone. This is Jeff Simpson covering for Dr. Matt on the Matt Townsend Show while he's away in beautiful St. George. I'm joined here by Terry South, our wonderful producer, as well as Cole, what is it, uh, Hesslinger or something like that? Westlinger. Westlinger. Wow. We've gotten a lot of help we on the board. You could have just left it at Cole. Cole. Huh? Cole's one of those one-name musicians or artists. Cole. Anyway, welcome to the show, Cole. Uh we are going to have a good time today because we are going to be speaking about something that never happens on the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to be speaking to a guest that's going to be talking to us about misinformation. Have we ever given out misinformation on this show? Not on purpose. <laughs> yeah, we need to get our fact-checking uh, team uh, listening to the show. I don't know if it's misinformation. I think it's just useless information at times. Oh, that sounds about right. But some yeah. of it's just kind of funny. So yeah, what are you going to do? Well, if we ever get a fact-checking team, we'll put them to work. I think that's why we've tried to change some of these stories into a how-to for the would-be criminal. Absolutely. Right? I mean, you're, you're sharing a story about a dumb criminal. It's kind of a useless story. But if you turn it into a how-to, all of a sudden it's possibly serving a public good for a small segment of the public. Right. And, you know, we're supposed to love everyone. Right. Not just the people that abide by the, the laws of the land. So we do, we do have an interest in helping those people out. We will also uh, be replaying an interview or two uh, with Dr. Matt. So you'll get to hear him on the show, even though he's not here in the studio. And, of course, we'll be speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. And uh, at the end of this hour, Terry, you've got an interesting story coming up, an interesting list of what is considered cool. Yes, Google has a research arm of their company, I guess they call it, and they've come up with some ideas. Mm. So we'll see. I'm finally going to know what's cool. Well, maybe. Maybe? Okay. You may not think it. It it depends on how far you want to go with it because you may not care. So will knowing what's cool, will that then make me cool? I think the information is more for people trying to sell things. Oh. So they know how to position themselves, but it's interesting information nonetheless. So the list will not p- help me be cool. Parents may be able to listen to it and go, oh, that's why my kid does that. Ah. Instead of just thinking their kids, you know, up in the night. Which oh, that's they probably great. are. Yeah. All right. Well, all that fun stuff coming up. Uh, but first, let's head over to Terry South and see what's going on around the rest of the country. Nikki Haley, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations on Wednesday, strongly condemned the Syrian government in the wake of the alleged chemical weapons attack perpetrated on its own civilians this week. She added that if the U.N. doesn't take collective action, we may. Haley currently serves the U.N. Secretary Council President, and she was speaking to the group as it discussed a resolution condemning Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's regime for its violence. Time and time again, without any factual basis, Russia attempts to place blame on others. There is an obvious truth here that must be spoken. The truth is that Assad, Russia, have no interest in peace. More than 70 people, including at least 20 children, died following the attack on Tuesday. Syria followed up the chemical chemical attack with airstrikes on local hospitals in the rebel-held region. 
How many more children have to die before Russia cares, Haley said, while holding up a photograph of the victims. Mm. She went pretty strong right at Russia. And oh, their yeah. ambassador's just kind of looking around like, all right, this is probably just another day <laughs> at the office. President Trump has removed White House, or, uh, removed White House Chief uh, Strategist Steve Bannon from his role in the National Security Council. A senior White House official confirmed Wednesday National Security Advisor H.R. McAllister made the decision, which Trump approved. The official said Bannon, who led Trump's campaign in its final months, was elevated in January to a position on the NSC Principles Committee, a shakeup that drew widespread criticism that Trump was trying to politicize the council. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, director of national intelligence, had their roles downgraded in the move. The Joint Chiefs chairman and intelligence director are having their roles as regular attendees of the Principles Committee restored, according to a regular filing Tuesday. The director of the Central Intelligence Agency will also have a permanent role on the committee. It's good to have the director of the CIA on the National Security Council. So does this, a good move. does this mean we're not going to see Rosie O'Donnell play Steve Bannon on SNL? I don't know if we were ever going to see that. Darn it. She wanted it. She was oh. kind of... You know, campaigning for it. <laughs> Reports out this morning have Bannon threatening to quit if he was taken off the council, and then other like big name donor type people to the campaign calling him and telling him, "No, no, no, you need to stay on." And so this whole palace intrigue going on. Apparently, Steve Bannon and President Son-in-Law Jared Kushner are in a bit of a uh, rivalry happening at the White really? House. Really? He uh, Bannon thinks that the uh, son-in-law is undermining him. In many different aspects. So it's all about power and positioning, which is great when you're trying to, you know, talk about Syria. You have a meeting with China coming up this weekend. But that's fine. We're going to fight amongst ourselves. The Senate will vote this morning on the fate of Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch. The Senate uh, session will gavel into session at 10 a.m. Eastern. An hour later at 11 a.m., senators will vote and whether to end the debate. Democrats have enough votes to block the attempt to move forward with the vote. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said he will immediately move to change Senate rules to end the filibuster. Assuming at least 50 Republicans support this nuclear option, the Senate will vote to start the clock for the vote to confirm Gorsuch. expected Friday evening. I suspect it will be very boring and covered fully on C-SPAN. Is there anything that Democrats can do if the nuclear option is... No. Oh, the point man. of the nuclear option is to make it so the, the majority party rules. Huh. Whereas the, the votes now where there's 60 votes to confirm anything makes it so you have to have some agreement across the board. Mm. So they're just going to wipe that out. It's interesting to see how many of these Democrats actually feel like Neil Gorsuch should not hold that position versus they just don't want Republicans to get another win. Right. On some levels. Or it's, it's as they're saying, because Obama's appointee wasn't allowed even a vote. True. Even they didn't even like talk to him. There's no hearings. They they're <laughs> acting as if that's a big thing. And I don't. Have but to, he was on politics. his way out. That was part of the reasoning, wasn't it? Well, that was he was he was that was uh, he was nominated with Obama having 11 months left in office. Yeah, that's still good a, a good chunk of time. A good chunk of time. So the Republican pushed to revive legislation of repealing and replacing Obamacare is stalled once again, with GOP leaders shooting down the latest request to change the legislation from the Freedom Caucus. Representative Patrick McHenry, the chief deputy whip on Wednesday, said the idea of allowing states to waive requirements for covering people with pre-existing conditions is a bridge too far for our members and can't get enough votes to pass. McHenry, the law lawmakers need a cooling-off period to think about where to go next. We need people to stop, take stop, take a deep breath, and think uh, about how we get to yes 
on the health care bill. Almost sounds like lyrics to a Michael Jackson song. It almost Looking did. at the, like uh, the man in the mirror. The man in the mirror. The comments came after a late night meeting among different House GOP factions on Tuesday. Produced no progress. The House Republicans begin a two-week Easter break this afternoon. That's why they're all leaving for two weeks, and so there's no health care bill. Aren't we pretty much the only country that doesn't get a week off for Easter? I'm not sure. I think there's a bunch of European countries that, well, yeah. Yeah, they get all kinds of days off. We don't care. <laughs> as, uh, and this finally, as of a few weeks ago, I found this interesting. J.P. Morgan Chase, big financial company, bank, all kinds of money. They were appearing on about 400,000 websites a month with advertising, right? This is a sort of eye-popping number that has become a norm these days for big companies that use automated tools to, to reach customers online. Now, as more and more brands find their ads popping up next to toxic content like fake news sites or offensive YouTube videos, J.P. Morgan has limited its display ads to about 5,000 websites uh, that it has already pre-approved. So they went through and said, these are websites that we only will be appearing against. We don't just, you know, don't, don't give it over to a company and they just blast the internet with your ads. Right. right. So what they, the, the bank's chief marketing officer has said that surprisingly the company has seen a little change in the cost of impressions or visibility of its ads on the internet. She said, an impression is generally counted each time an ad is shown. So what they're saying is, 400,000 sites versus 500 sites, they're getting exactly the same traction with their ads. Really? So mm. it doesn't matter. Even though they, they flood the internet with ads versus they have a very limited number, they're getting the same result with their money. Oh, that's good information Which to shows have, you that apparently somebody was taking money for useless service. <laughs> oh, well, the internet. Oh. The one thing people hate about it is all the ads. So mm. maybe if everyone dialed back, it'd get better. It is scary, too, and we talked about this a little bit yesterday, um, just going online, looking at even, like, dictionary.com, you right. see, like, oh, yeah, I was looking up lawnmowers, and now yeah. I'm going to be reminded about it forever and ever. I, my, my wife will get on. We kind of uh, we share the same accounts on Amazon, and she's, like, just looking at whatever she's looking at, and so I'm like, why is this showing up on my page? Terry- why, why is there all sorts of, like kitchen like it was like a can opener or something who looked up a can opener and so terry why are you bidding on dr strange's cloak again right (laughs) i couldn't even remember the name of it the cloak of uh uh, oh gosh i don't even know yeah i forgot the movie passed so i expunged (laughs) that from my memory oh i don't think that's possible because i'm sure they're gonna make a handful of Uh, others i hope so speaking of i have movie (gasps) news yes let's get to it let me find movie news is it Shia LaBeouf? Is it La- Shia, La- Shia LaBeouf. I can never get his name right. Yeah. Are these my stories? No? Yes. Okay. I found my movie stories. I know you like movies. Oh, yeah. So, Shia, he's had a rough going, rough time for the last while. He had Indiana Jones. They were trying to make him the new Indiana Jones. That didn't work <laughs> out right. The movie was horrible. He's been in the Transformer movies. They moved him out of there because that got kind of... I guess they felt like it was uh, losing traction, even though every movie has made a billion dollars. And they put oh, in yeah. a, a Wahlberg, because they thought a Wahlberg would, would help the franchise, even though the humans are really secondary in those movies. I like how you way. said, oh, Wal- Wahlberg, like yeah, we would be confused. Well, yeah. I know there's Donnie and there's that other one. But... There's a few. I'm not even really sure which one's in it. It's just <laughs> the, one, of the do- one of the Wahlbergs are in there. Um, but uh, Shia, Shia? Shia. I can't ever say Shia. Shia. Um, he, he has a new movie called Man Down. Yes. It opened in the UK, right? He's a Marine searching for his son in Afghanistan or something. And, uh, but it says it opened 
only in the UK in one theater, and it sold apparently one ticket. Ooh, wah, wah. So they're saying the film screened at a single theater, the real cinema in uh, Burnley, England, and according to the cross-platform measurement company Comscore, it raked in $8.70, which means one person went and sat down and watched his movie. Wow. That's a pretty good ticket price for the UK. Eight seventy. Yeah. Uh-huh. So the movie oh. will be on DVD and Blu-ray next month, so it's no big deal. But at the same time, it's like <laughs> you have a premiere and one person saw your movie. That's like planning so a party was, and nobody shows up. Was it Shia? Did he go hmm. see his own movie? I don't think it was very well received or I don't think anybody saw it over here either. Well, it didn't premiere over here. It premiered in London only. Oh, it premiered one, there. One theater... Ooh. It was the only one it's shown in. One person saw it. Well, maybe people heard that it was coming out on video on demand and Blu-ray and Could be. decided to wait. Possibly the worst movie premiere of all time. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Not that there was like a huge marketing campaign behind it, but maybe you'd catch some guy just stumbling off the street. Apparently, they caught one person. So more people watch his random political Stuff protests yeah. than they do his movies now. Yeah. Wow. That's sad. Kind of interesting. And finally, uh, what's well, CinemaCon? Mm-hmm. It's a convention. I believe it's for uh, movie theater owners. Operators can go and they can see what preview, what movies are coming up in the next 12 months. So they yeah. can kind of figure out which ones they want to purchase and mm-hmm. be involved in. The stars show up. They show secret clips that you no one's able to see. And then they people in entertainment sites write like recaps of these <laughs> previews that no one has seen. It's, I don't. I hate reading about a preview. Just show me the preview. I don't need the details. Right. I, well, I do need the details, but I'd like to see them. <laughs> uh, so last week, Michael Bay, director of all the Transformer films, was asked if he's actually going to be leaving the Transformers franchise. He, he said not only that he'd like to do one more movie, he's done five, I think, mm-hmm. but that there were already 14 stories ready to go in the Transformers universe. 14. 14. Not that they're going to make 14 movies, but there's 14 scripts they can pick from. I didn't even know there were that many Transformers in the collection oh, of characters. Oh, yeah. There's like five, six years of comic books. Wow. Planets of them. Says Bay answers the question about whether or not he was leaving by waffling a bit. He then said that there would be... Um, Easter eggs of uh, you know, thing, things look looking towards the future of the Star Wars or the Star Wars the Transformers franchise. So little hints of where they're going to take the franchise next. And his most alarming response was to questions about spinoffs planned for uh, Transformers into a bona fide cinematic universe. The director said there are 14 stories written. There's good stuff, so I would like to do one of them. Now, saying good stuff with most of these movies, they're they're pretty light on like plot and story and acting, and it's mainly just to watch robots transform and punch each other. Sure. Yeah. You know I, that's a good point. I don't. I don't think I've ever. I think in my lifetime, I would like to see a Michael Bay movie that has a fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Right. They're all sub-50. But they make yeah. money because they're just sort of mind-numbingly good popcorn movie to watch, I guess. But if now, you're going for, like, deep you know, theater, it's not the place to go. I, there is one movie that Michael Bay did that I did like that was not did not get a fresh rating, a movie called The Island. We've talked about oh, this on yeah, the show yeah. before. You've talked about it. You like that one, yeah. Yeah. And it got a it got a rotten rating, but who cares? It was it was entertaining, right? And Better that, than the Transformers movies. Most of those are just sort of entertaining, and and people don't get them. But if you grew up with the toys, there's a certain amount of nostalgia to watching your toys up on the big screens. So. That's true. But this is a movie 
And this, I, I could say this about very few movies, but if it's on TV, I'll watch it. It's that good. Anyway, you know what? I, I Now I'm hungry because Michael Bay was waffling. And I wish that I had done some waffling this morning. Maybe some baconing and some OJing. Mm, maybe tomorrow. I'm getting coal hungry here, too, I can tell. Either that or he's just rolling his eyes at me right now. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to speak to a very special guest uh, who is going to be speaking to us about misinformation in politics. That doesn't happen, right? (laughs) We'll hear more about it when we come back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's away in St. George right now. Uh, Our next guest is uh, Jennifer Hochschild, who is a professor of government at Harvard University, professor of African and African-American studies, uh, Harvard College professor, and the chair of the Department of Government. Hochschild is the author and co-author of numerous books, including most recently, Do Facts Matter? Information and Misinformation in American Politics. And she's here with us this morning to shed some more light on that very subject. Jennifer, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, I, I'm, I'm curious. I, I know that uh, in, in the book you, you talk about this uh, Thomas Jefferson's ideal citizen. Can you tell us what that is and what that means? Uh, yes. I mean, Jefferson's only one of many people who have made essentially the same argument, but he's, of course, so eloquent and such an iconic figure that we use him to talk about the Jeffersonian ideal. Uh, the, the image is a pretty straightforward one, I think, that probably most of us would share, which is that citizens of a democratic political system ought to have some reasonably plausible knowledge of important policy issues. It's not a claim that citizens ought to be experts in every aspect of politics. That would be silly. But yet you ought to have some knowledge about crucially important policy issues, both domestically and in foreign policy. And you ought to use that knowledge to formulate your own opinions about what the best policy would be or who the best political leader would be. And then you ought to use that knowledge and those opinions in your vote or your political participation broadly. So citizens should know factual information, correct factual information, and they should use it politically. So wait a minute. You're telling me there's a problem with misinformation these days. That can't be true. (laughs) <laughs> oh, surely not. Nobody's ever worried about that right. before or contemporary. Yes, of course. And, and, and the only thing I would change in your rhetorical question is these days. This is a, this is a long-standing issue. I mean, it, sure. there's never been any political system that had the Jeffersonian ideal. Whether ours is now dramatically worse than it used to be or whether we're now paying more attention to the fact that it's never been close is a good question. Yeah. Okay. So – you know, obviously, just as you said, we need to be making informed decisions. Why Why is that important for us as just ordinary citizens? And more important, I don't even know if it's more importantly, but why is it also important for uh, politicians and decision makers? Uh, well, it's important 
for us as ordinary citizens, for I think a couple reasons, normatively or philosophically, that's what a democracy is supposed to mean. Um, we're supposed to uh, – we have the right to have our views – probably generally a majority of our views, although there's some variations on that, shape the direction of the government uh, on important issues. And we have the right to choose the leaders whom we think are best able to shape the direction in those policy arenas. And correspondingly, we have the responsibility, at least according to the theory, of doing that sensibly, smartly. I mean, we, we shouldn't just you know, throw a dart. We shouldn't pick the person who wears one kind of underwear rather than another. We shouldn't pick the person whom we want to drink a beer with. We should pick the person <laughs> or the policies that we think are better for us and our families and hopefully more generally for the for our group, for the country as a whole, maybe even for the nation as a whole, for the world as a whole. So, so citizens in a democratic political system have both the right to make informed and important choices – to, to be to be informed and to make important choices, and they have the responsibility to get that information and to actually engage with the political system. That's how the theory works. From the politician's perspective, um, I would say two things. One is presumably, at least one hopes, people run for office or become judges or become administrators, bureaucrats, because they actually do care about what the right answer is. They they care about you know peace rather than war. Uh, economic opportunity rather than economic stagnation, racial and ethnic and gender and group-based equity, however they define that, rather than unfairness, injustice, inequity. Now, of course, they're going to disagree on exactly what those words mean, and that's fine. That's what democratic political system is supposed to be about. But one hopes that politicians actually do care about getting the answer right, and more perhaps realistically, they they need to care about what citizens want them to do because they'll be out of office if they don't. Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's funny because it's it's difficult to to turn on Facebook or other another social media site and not see some political rant from somebody who you know buys into conspiracy theories and so. Obviously, there there are varying types of of uh, of people that are informed or not informed. And in your book, you talk about four types of citizens and four levels of of being informed. Could you talk about those for a minute? Sure. Um, it's a it's a it's a kind of a it's a two by two table for the wonks in your audience. Um, that's kind of how my mind works. So the first category is what we talked about before: the kind of the Jeffersonian ideal citizen. So. They know correct information that matters, and they use it in their political and policy activities, both voting and other kinds of political participation. That's the goal that everybody's working towards. Uh, the second category is people who know correct information but don't use it politically. So they fit half of the Jeffersonian ideal but not the other half. Um, you know, in, in a personal example, I should lose 10 pounds, I should stop smoking, I shouldn't yell at my children, I should – you know, we all know things that we – I should exercise more, whatever. We all know certain things that we ought to be doing that we don't do, um, and we tend to think that's a bad thing. Um, in the political system, you can generalize that more beyond kind of personal choices. 
uh, our favorite example in the book, I should say that this book is co-authored with Catherine Einstein, who was a former student of mine and then very quickly became an absolutely essential co-author. So this is a, a genuinely joint we when I say that. Um, our, our, our best example or our clearest example, I think, is climate change. So, for example, we have some survey evidence that a large share of the American population know what the scientists are telling us, which is that the Earth is warming dangerously and that human activity is a significant contributor to that. Um, so th we call those people correctly informed. There's then a series of questions about, well, what should we do about it? Should the government, uh, you know, should we tax electricity more? Should individuals stop driving SUVs and start driving electric cars? Should we use nuclear power for peaceful purposes of energy development? Should we, and so on and so forth. Long list of policy preferences. And a chunk of people who have the correct information say no to all of those policy options. So that's our second case, people who are correctly informed but don't use that correct information in political decision-making in ways that at least one could plausibly say they should. Right. The third category, and so those people, we, we, I could talk later about kind of the political dynamics of this. We, we call them basically, they're frustrating to a political official. Yeah. Um, and they're the people that, you know, we all get endless emails and letters through the mail. Please contribute to the something or other. You know that the SEALs are being killed. You know that racial injustice is occurring in Ferguson, Missouri. You know that you're being taxed too heavily. You know that certain whatever the political message is send us money so that we can fix this problem or get out on the streets so that we can fix this problem or tell your neighbors and we should all you know whatever so so those kinds of letters and emails are aimed at this second category people who know the right thing to do and aren't doing it the third category is the one that we actually think is most dangerous and most important in this misinformation arena, which is people who quote, I'm using air quote, scare quotes here, okay. know <laughs> misinformation. They know that uh, Barack Obama was born outside the United States. Um, they know that the 9-11 attacks were actually organized by the state of Israel. Um, they know we they didn't know walk on the moon. <laughs> yeah, they know that gen genetically modified food is dangerous for you. I mean, again, there's a left version and a right version. We're not trying to claim, and this is very important, that you know the people whose policies, whose politics we agree with have correct information and the, those other guys have the wrong information. I think that's, I mean, it's very tempting, but that's not what we're trying to say. We're trying to say that both the left and the right it's easier for us to find right examples of misinformation, but nonetheless, it's an analytic category. It's not a political claim. So there are people who have strong beliefs in the correctness of wrong, again, quote, information, and they use it politically. Um, and, and, and so they're active. They're, they, again, they have half of the Jeffersonian ideal, which is to say they're politically active on, based on their beliefs. But they don't have the other half, which is that their beliefs are wrong. And we say that that category is actually very dangerous to a democratic political system. The people who don't act on what they know are frustrating and annoying, and that's why we get these letters endlessly about you know send money, contribute, participate. But the people who know wrong things – again, know is always here in scare quotes – and act on it politically, that's really dangerous. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, a big policy version of that story is weapons of mass destruction. Um, 
in Iraq, right? I mean, that, that, that the president and both Democratic and Republican members of Congress, quote, knew that Saddam Hussein was hiding WMDs. Right. And they told us that over and over. A few people dissented, and a few people said, I don't know, we don't know what's out there in the desert. I haven't been there. Who knows? <laughs> but, but mostly they told us that was correct information based on intelligence reports or whatever. You look at public opinion surveys, most Americans followed the lead of their political leaders, not surprisingly. So anywhere, you know, 80, 90% said, yes, there are WMDs. Uh, yes, the United States ought to invade, or yes, there ought to be a coalition of Western nations. This is too dangerous. Get this guy out of here. Find the weapons. Invade. Uh, we did. Uh, there were not any weapons found. Uh, and, you know, hundreds and thousands of Americans died, and probably hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, um, of Iraqis died. So, so this is a really dangerous mistake. Um, now, whether it was an honest mistake and, gee, you know, we sometimes get things wrong and I guess we'd better back out because we're invading a country, you know, or whether it was a deliberate political strategy on the part of the political leadership, in this case the Republican Party, um, because they wanted the oil, because they wanted to revenge George Bush's father's defeat, because they think warmongering is a way of moving people's attention away from domestic policy, and who knows why, um, it, it was really bad for us as a country. Yeah. A, a smaller example, but I think another telling one, is the belief that childhood vaccination causes autism. Um, and you know, I can trace the history for you of how that belief came about. Sure. Uh, but but the main point here is that parents who desperately want what's best for their children, I mean, this is not, you know, political strategizing for advantage. This is, you know, I don't love anybody in the world as much as I love my baby, and, and I want to do what's best for my baby. And I have read the quote, scientific, again, square quotes here, evidence that vaccination causes autism, so I'm not going to vaccinate my kid, or I'm going to choose some but not others, or I'm going to delay. I'm not going to do what the, my pediatrician is telling me is right. Um, and that's very dangerous. I mean, it's done out of the best of motives, but sometimes unvaccinated children themselves get measles or pertussis or, you know, diseases that we've almost eradicated. And sometimes if you get below what's called herd immunity, roughly 95% of the population needs to be immunized in order for these contagious diseases not to spread. If I do what's best for my kids and you do what's best for your kids and a fair share of us don't vaccinate our children and we get below 90 or 95% of the population, then babies who are too young to be vaccinated or children who have medical reasons not to be, they'll get the measles and pertussis. And, and you know, sometimes they die. Not, not often. We have pretty good medical care, but but you know, young men can be sterilized. I mean, this is this is really bad stuff. Um, and what's interesting about the vaccination case is that it's it's based. It's if you believe the scientific consensus, it is clearly not true that vaccination causes autism. And you know, again, I can kind of give you bits and pieces of evidence about that. But politically, what's interesting is this tends to be very well educated, white high-income, highly sophisticated individuals and communities who don't vaccinate. 
So again, this is not a failure of our education system or right-wing conspiracy or naivete. This is, you know, Malibu, California, private schools in New York, right. Oregon, Scarsdale, New York. I mean, the best educated, best off, most politically sophisticated communities are the ones that have the lowest vaccination rates in some cases. Yeah. Um, so that's our third category, which is holding misinformation and using it in the political or public arena. Uh, the fourth category I'm going to ignore. It's a kind of weird anomaly and doesn't doesn't actually matter. So it's those three that actually matter. Okay. Well, Jennifer, I, I want to uh, ask you another question about uh, an example of misinformation in politics when we come back. Well, let's take a break first, and uh, we'll continue the discussion when we come back. Her name is Jennifer Hochschild, and she is the co-author of the book Do Facts Matter? Information and Misinformation in American Politics. And we will continue the discussion when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We've been speaking with Jennifer Hochschild, who is uh, the co-author of the of the book "Do Facts Matter: Information and Misinformation in American Politics." And uh, Jennifer, before the break, you gave some examples of of misinformation in politics, and it seems like a a more modern example of this would be with uh, what's going on with Trump, Trump right now, with the wiretapping and the voter fraud. And you know, I don't know if if he truly and uh, sincerely believes that, or if this is just a tactic to try to push attention elsewhere. What's your take on that? I. I'll answer that, but let me back up for one minute to set the Trump phenomenon into a broader context, which is one of the things that we argue is that, you know, citizens are misinformed and and act in ways that we've just talked about as being kind of dangerous. But but the real problem is the incentives of politicians, of political actors, particularly people running for office, either to promote misinformation or not to correct it. So let's assume that the politician has the best interests of the country at at heart and is genuinely wants to do the right thing and needs to get elected, needs to have voters, you know, more voters support him or her than the opponent. So so here's the thought experiment. I'm running for office and you know the wrong thing. You know that there are weapons of mass destruction. You know that Obama was born in Kenya. You know that vaccination causes autism. You know that whatever. Uh, you know that illegal immigrants are pouring across the border, you, whatever. Do I say to you, well, actually, voter, you're wrong. Um, give up your beliefs. That was really silly. You're just a conspiracy theorist. And by the way, all the friends of yours who hold the same beliefs, they're wrong, too. And by the way, the media, the TV station, the radio stations you listen to, it's wrong, too. And... You guys are really silly. Change what you believe and vote for me. Right. People you, don't do that. Those actually may be quotes from Trump during this uh, <laughs> campaign. Well, maybe. I mean, I made them up, but I probably yeah. got them and, and so the incentive for a politician to tell the voter, you are wrong, and not only are you wrong, you're silly and dangerous, and I want your vote because I'm right, that's not a very smart strategy in most Right, yeah. So, so politicians aren't going to do that. 
So some politicians will just ignore the misinformed. You know, no demo- few Democratic candidates spent a whole lot of time talking to birthers, to people who thought Obama was born outside the country, because it isn't worth their while. What you do instead is to try to get people who already agree with you or who are uncertain and might be persuaded to agree with you. So the incentives for politicians is not to correct misinformation. The next step is moves us closer to the Trump phenomenon, which is in some cases politicians have an incentive to reinforce it, not to create it, but to reinforce it. And again, the birther phenomenon is, is the clearest case. Um, we talk about the confirmation of Justice Thomas. I mean, you can go way, you know, much farther back in history if you want to, um, which is to say, even after President Obama released his birth certificate, and it would have been plausible to say, this issue's dead, uh, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Important, highly visible politicians kept returning to it. And, you know, we actually traced the, the, the quotes. I mean, so once every few months, one or another prominent Republican elected official or candidate would just bring it back up. As a joking, you know, Rick Perry, governor of Texas, said, well, you know, I kind of like to tease Obama on the, you know, where's your birth certificate? How, what were your high school grades anyway? Did you smoke dope? It's kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> and then Mitt Romney a few months later says, you know, my wife and I are thrilled to be back in Michigan. We were born in Michigan. This is our home state. Nobody's ever asked me for my birth certificate. Ha, ha, ha. So, so they keep poking at it. Not because they believe it. These guys are very sophisticated, but because it's politically valuable to them. It reminds their troops, their constituents, we're on your side. This may be kind of a silly belief, but it doesn't matter. We're we're with you, and and therefore you're with me. Vote for me. So, So the second stage is a politician actually reinforcing misinformation because it's valuable for their electoral campaign. Interesting. The third stage is the Trump phenomenon, which is inventing it out of whole cloth. And that's something that it does seem to me, it's, it's, again, it's not totally new. If you go back to the 19th century, you know, people accused presidential candidates of having children out of wedlock. They accused them, God forbid, of being Catholic, which was about as bad a thing as you could say of anybody. Um, <laughs> you, you know, so, so the notion of just inventing lies out of nothing is a very old political phenomenon. It probably goes back to the, the Greeks if you actually wanted to trace it. Um, but, but President Trump, I do believe, has carried it much farther, much longer, and in a much richer media environment, so it has much more impact than any predecessor. And, and it feels to me like something pretty new and different. So that, you know, again... I mean, Obama exaggerated the truth without any question. Mitt Romney kind of poked around on this birther thing because it was a kind of a signal to his constituents that, you know, you and I are the same kind of person. But I I think President Bush probably genuinely thought there were weapons of mass destruction, at least initially. He didn't sort of invent it out of whole cloth. He hung on to it longer than he should have, but he didn't invent it. I think what President Trump is doing is – it's not again not unique, but but really pushing this very very much farther, uh, just creating quote factual unquote statements that are just patently false. Does he believe them? I have no idea, and I don't actually care. Um, 
you know, it, it, there is zero evidence that five or six million undocumented immigrants, illegal immigrants voted. Uh, there's zero evidence that Obama wiretapped him. Now, he might be right that something was going on. I mean, we now know that he was a sort of a collateral, you know, there was some, some degree of investigation because the uh, intelligence services were trying to investigate the Russians. And so maybe, you know, so, but, but there's nobody thinks except him that, that, that Obama deliberately and intentionally and illegally wiretapped. So, so this is a kind of a third stage. The first stage is politicians don't try to correct misinformation because it doesn't do any good. The second stage is politicians reinforce misinformation because it does do good for them. And the third stage is politicians just inventing lies out of whole cloth in the hopes of probably not persuading. I don't even think I don't think even Trump thinks he's going to persuade people. It's a way of you know this, it's us against them. Unite with me. We're on the side of the good guys. All those other people are on the side of the bad guys. The world is much more dangerous than you used to think it was. There's an awful lot of bad people doing terrible things, and I'm the only one who can protect us and our country. So I, I see it as a very poisonous phenomenon. Mm. Yeah. And okay, so, Jennifer, it looks like we've got about a minute left. Uh, I'm curious to know, what's the one thing that we can do today? What can we do to stop the spreading of this misinformation? Yeah, right. If I knew that, I'd be out the <laughs> um, I mean, one answer is, you know, this kind of conversation, teaching, writing books, writing newspaper stories, headlines now say lie rather than fake news. I mean, just try to educate people. I don't think that's terribly effective, even though I spent my life doing it, but that's one strategy. A second strategy is to change politicians' incentives. So call them out, shame them, embarrass them, or give them reason to think that if they tell the truth, we will actually honor and respect them for doing that rather than just following along with the kind of manipulation. Um, not easy to do, but it seems to me that's a strategy. A third strategy is to change policy choices so that you don't rely so much on citizens' knowledge. So you, you design the Affordable Health Care Act, the Affordable Care Act, the Obama Act, Obamacare, so that individuals who can't possibly be expected to know all the ins and outs of health insurance have two or three very clear choices in front of them. Basically, you give them the information they need, you, you being the website, and you say, for this much money, you get this much care. For that much money, you get that much care. For a third amount of money, you get a third amount of care. Which one do you want? So basically, design policies to provide the information that people need and then give them very clear choices so that they actually can do the kind of democratic decision-making we'd like to have. Well, Jennifer, we, we appreciate your time here on, on the Matt Townsend Show with us this morning, and thank you for shedding light on this important topic because it is very prevalent today. Uh, her name is Jennifer uh, Hochschild, and she is professor of, of government at Harvard University, and she's the co-author of the book Do Facts Matter? Information and Misinformation in American Politics. So make sure to look that up. We'll, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with Terry South, who's going to be talking to us about a Google list that's going to tell us what is cool. So hopefully that'll help me out. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. You know, earlier in the program, Terry uh, made a joke about how sometimes we give you information that is just not very useful. But I feel like this next topic is something that is incredibly useful. We're giving you the secret to what is cool, or at least Google is. Right, Terry? Well, yeah. They have a marketing division, a digital research arm, recently released a study on Generation Z, which is anyone apparently born after 1993. Okay, so and we've already established I'm it's, not in Generation not Z. Not you, it's not me. Um, <laughs> are you... Okay, Cole, our producer's not Generation Z also. I just had to check. I don't want to offend as you're here in the room. Um, it's called... The, the report's called It's Lit, a definitive guide to what teens think is cool, which is totally something some adult who's not part of this generation Absolutely. wrote. The title alone should immediately remind you that... Uh, yeah, the people are old that made it. Um, that's kind of what they're saying here. It says, below are six things this, the re- reporter here learned. One, teens feel something is cool if it's unique, impressive, interesting, amazing, or awesome. Everything is awesome. Yeah, I know. So that, that doesn't make sense. Uh, the study opens strong with a number of synonyms for cool. Unfortunately, it's written with the without the Oxford comma and is widely known there's nothing cooler to teens than grammatical. So apparently there's a grammatical <laughs> error in the first, first paragraph. Teens think Doritos are cooler than, like, WhatsApp, which is a texting Well, maybe that's app. just because there's Doritos Cool Ranch. So it says they rank brands by coolness. Teens rank uh, Sunglass Hut near the bottom, which is, a you know, in the dying malls of America. So you that's can find not a sunglass cool. Hut. Um, so it goes, uh, it says, uh, let's see, Google, YouTube, Netflix, and Doritos rank the highest. <laughs> Usually at the same time. You're doing right. all those things at the Absolutely. same time. Uber is cooler for millennials than it is for Generation Z. Hmm. For whatever reason. Right, sharing that And way. I'm also not a millennial, we've right. established. No, you are. The <laughs> iPhone is an, versus Android wars are neck and neck. The teens surveyed 42% have an iPhone, while 41% are on Android. Only 3% have a Windows phone, because why would you have one of those? Um, That's that's an even nerdier debate than Captain America versus Iron Man. Is it? I think so. Your phone? I think your phone is something that pretty, you know, every every kid would think is, again, you're just I use it as a phone, so I'm I'm not cool, I guess. All right. Generation Z is the most informed, evolved, and empathetic generation of its kind, assuming of its kind it means humans. Um... So yeah, they're saying that uh, they're more evolved. They're they're thinking of others more, and they're of course. Know, we'll see what happens. Um, that they'll probably grow out of that. Age <laughs> age pretty much kills all that. So, and according to teens, pizza, Oreos, chips, and ice cream are quote cool. Of course, yeah. I think everybody feels that way though. I think that's the case. Oh yeah. Okay. Who doesn't um, love pizza and ice cream? Did you say was Oreos one of those? Oreos is in there too. Which is probably why Oreos keeps cranking out a new flavor every week. It, it is a like. dang good cookie. The top 10 coolest brands according to the survey, YouTube, which is interesting because that's a Google property. Right. Or Alphabet, whatever. Um, Netflix, Google, Xbox, Oreos, GoPro, because they like the cameras, because uh, you know they have to video their life and document it and share it with everyone because that's how you're supposed to Instead of just e- experiencing it. Right. Yeah. And uh, PlayStation, Doritos, Nike, and Chrome. Chrome. Which is the uh, the internet browser. You don't say Google Chrome anymore. You just say Chrome. You say Chrome. 
which that's is what the cool kids so are doing. it says Google products are pretty well represented on the list which they hmm interesting Google made the made the study and Google's well represented that's interesting um, there's also a more a love for chick-fil-a apparently <laughs> right. apparently the generation Z those born uh, what after 1993 love the chick-fil-a they do have the Chris cut uh, Chris cut fries. I, or cross cut. I don't cross, know. You, are they yeah. cross cut? Is that what they're called? Criss cross applesauce. Fries. Waffle fries. Those are good. But you can only fit like two in the box that they give you. Ah. So, yeah, apparently uh, that's what millennial, not millennials, but Generation Z, the generation after millennials, likes. Wow. Now, I'm not sure how that is useful to anyone hmm. other than you're like, well, okay, well, I think they like to play on the internet and play video games and eat junk food. That's pretty much what it's told us. So I'm semi-cool then, according to Generation Zers. Uh, or, I, or you're just immature. Maybe. I don't play video games, though. I do. Wow. I, that's, mm. This is strange. I don't know where I fall then. Yeah. Interesting. But mm. Doritos? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oreos? To the point where I don't buy them unless it's the Super Bowl. You, so you have you you've admitted have, that you have a problem. I have a problem. I've taken steps where I can answer that once a year, and that's it. See, now that to me is cool. That bell gets rung, and I'm just covered in Dorito dust. It's gross. Oh goodness! So your wife came in one day, and you were just passed out with the. She said, "You have a problem. <laughs> we're going to put some restraints on this one." I'm like, "All right, all right, cool." Oh, you wanted more, and. And she said, I think you've had enough. I'll tell you when I've had enough. That just got weird really fast. Anyway, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to continue the fun. We're going to continue, I shouldn't say celebrating the absence of Matt Townsend, but we'll recognize the absence. But we'll also give you a little taste of Matt today because we will be replaying a couple of interviews that he conducted a while back that are still relevant today. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Thursday. I had to think there for a second. Good Thursday morning here on the Matt Townsend Show and pretty much everywhere else, actually. Uh, this is Jeff Simpson uh, filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away in St. George. And I'm joined, of course, by Terry South, our producer, and Cole. We've just decided to call him Cole, who's running the board for us this morning. Like Sting and Cheryl, only need one name. That's right. And he's uh, he's rocking out a beanie, so I think the name is very fitting. And last hour, we learned about uh, what is cool versus what is not cool. And I think I learned that I'm semi-cool. What about you, Terry? I don't know. I think I use every product they talked about, and I eat the food, and not a lot of it, but, you know, I enjoy an Oreo every once in a while. So, yeah, I'm with the kids. I'm very confident in saying that in 10 years, pizza, Doritos, uh, they're still going to be cool. Right. And Oreos. Mm -hmm. Those never get old, unless you leave them out. Um, And I'm definitely more of a, a regular Oreo guy than a double stuffed um, I've, tr- I've tried pretty much every one of their alternative flavors, and they're okay. 
It's not like I'm, oh, I'm just going to do this flavor only, no more. And it's all, we always go back to the original. So. Now but what they, ab- they want to just kind of you know keep it different, but at the same time draw you back in, too. What about, uh, what's that other brand that's like Hi-Ho? Or Hydrox. Hydrox. Yeah, those, or, are just, yeah. those are just bad. Just not as good. No. Hmm. I mean, they're probably fine, but they're not. My mom used to do that. When I was a kid, we'd get a sandwich, an apple, and like cookies for our lunch. Yeah. And uh, when we'd take lunch to school, and my mom would sometimes, she'd get like a name brand cookie, and that was good. But then sometimes she'd go get that generic sort of whatever grocery store you go to, whatever their cookie is. Mm-hmm. And you're like, it just wasn't as good a cookie. Yeah. And and I, I would usually trade my cookies for other food, right? So you had this bar- bartering thing going on. And um, yeah, people would say, what kind of cookie is it? And I'd tell them. And when I'd have to explain it, just some store brand thing, they're like, eh, and that would really cut back on what I could, you know, get with my cookie. And you could tell, too, because Oreo brands their cookies, right. says Oreo, and all the name brand ones kind of look like a doily in right. a cookie form. Like, mm-hmm. they have all those weird holes in yeah. them. Yeah. Their fancy design. It's not the same. Okay. The same. I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say something controversial. Uh-oh. I am of the opinion <clears> – <throat> excuse me. I am of the opinion that the generic – Girl Scout cookies are better yep. than the regular Girl Scout cookies. You, you, you have uh, put yourself on this island before. I'm going to get hate mail very, for saying very that. very brave with that. It's true. Not only do they taste better, but they're cheaper. I think the thing that makes Girl Scout cookies taste great to me is the scarcity factor. I can only get them oh, once a year. That's a great I don't have point. a dealer out here at college, so I have to like a, go through a, a my friends from back home, <laughs> like and then that. my parents send them to me in a box. Yeah. I know this because I just got the box if two you, days ago with my parents sending me two boxes of If you show up to pretty much mints. any grocery store on a Saturday during selling season, they're right there in the front to accost you before you get in the building. But right there, you just said season. So that says that they're not can, always in well, season. They have a website where you can go and pay the extraordinary prices to have them ship you boxes of, of cookies. But, you know, they're there too. And just, I think that might be year-round. Just look for the off-brand Samoas, the Thin Mints. Okay, the reason these Thin Mints are better is because they're not thin. They're thick and they taste so much better. And there is a scarcity uh, there too because I can't always find them at Winco. Knocking Girl Scout cookies. You do realize yeah. they're doing this as a fundraising project. Um, You're just a heartless individual. That's all that is. No, you could, I. You could support the the foundational like development of our future generations, but instead you're going to cheap out on cookies. Uh, yeah. Okay. When, just, when just something's to, not good for me, I don't want to spend a lot of money for it. Just establishing your motivation. Yeah. Okay. You you hit the nail on the head right there. <laughs> Terry, uh, tell us what's going on around the rest of the country. Well, this apparently is just happening. Embattled House Intelligence Committee Chairman David Nunez has announced he will temporarily recuse himself from his committee investigation into connections between the Trump campaign and Russia. Congressman came under fire from both sides of the aisle after a bizarre meeting on the White House grounds to view classified documents. Later, he shows up and talks to the president. So his story was he went to the White House grounds ended up later on uh, announcing that he actually met with White House staffers to get information and intelligence that the next day he then shared back with President Trump, who lives in the White House. Okay. Right? So we're not sure why did the, 
Why didn't the guys that work for intelligence type stuff in the White House just tell the president? Why did he have to bring this House guy in sure. so that he would come back the next day? It just seemed like weird, so he's going to step away because he's hurting the investigation that hasn't even started in the House yet. And then they're going to go on a two-week break now, so nothing's happening for a while. <laughs> so, moving on. Today, President Trump will welcome Chinese President Xi Jinping to the Mar-a-Lago Resort in Florida. The summit will offer the leaders a chance to forge a personal relationship after Trump has repeatedly attacked China for its trade practices. Among other issues, the White House says discussions, which are expected to touch on North Korea trade and climate change, will set a framework for future relations between the nations. However... Politico notes that uh, Xi's team from China could have the upper hand in negotiations as Trump has yet to fill many key positions. The people Trump will bring to the meeting include son-in-law Jared Kushner and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, largely lack any experience in those positions. And the Chinese uh, delegation will have uh, with their president a team with, quote, decades of experience in negotiating with at least three successive American presidents and a huge playbook brimming with research and intelligence, political reports. Mm. So there might be a little advantage when it comes to China when they sit down with Trump and his team. So what are some of those positions that he still needs to fill again? Um, It's mainly uh, like deputy positions because uh, you have you have like the main uh, presidents that speak but also their like secretaries of state will meet with their contemporary people from china and Mm -hmm. then you know you just have different departments that'll meet well there's no departments because trump has only made like 22 appointments 20 have been confirmed and by this point obama had 120 appointments with like 60 confirmed which is weird because trump started preparing long before obama did right for what for to fill these cabin positions no Really? That's probably part of the problem. Is someone, I thought he did. Someone probably wasn't really planning on winning. And once <laughs> they won, they had to scramble to fill positions. Oh, no, he knew he was going to win. <laughs> oh, right. Didn't that, you remember that? That was the story yeah. after the fact. It made it look better. Uh, President Trump said Wednesday in a Wednesday interview with the New York Times that he believes former National Security Advisor Susan Rice committed a crime in allegedly seeking to unmask the identities of Trump associates mentioned in Intercept Communications. Asked whether Rice committed a crime, Trump said, I do think, yes, I think. Or he goes, do I think, yes, I think. He's so hard to read verbatim from his, like, when he comments, and so they put his quotes exactly how he re- how he says them. It's hard to read because it's not really, like, English. Do I ever answer my own questions? Yes. Yes, I do. Yes, I do all the time. He did not offer up any, uh, like, uh, proof that there was some sort of crime committed he just believes there's a crime committed so now we're going to try to investigate something that he thinks happened a group of more than 25 technology companies academic institutions and nonprofits joined forces this week to help combat the influence of fake news as a kind of restoration project for digital commons the new integrity initiative is a 14 million dollar fund that seeks to improve how consumers and producers approach the news on a global scale in an age of rampant disinformation propaganda and false facts the project is being funded by nine deep-pocketed donors, including Facebook and Mozilla, who makes the Firefox browser, yes. if you ever use that. Um, do you think $14 million is going to fix it? Ooh, I think they need $15 million. Maybe, maybe. I found this story yesterday. found an interesting BuzzFeed put out a story. They found uh, the story is called Nevermind the Russians Meet the Bot King Who Helps Trump Win Twitter. Right? Hmm. So it's a guy who uses computer programs to amplify pro-Trump stories. Interesting. Right? Now, it's not necessarily 
fake news what he's doing, but it, it shows how a story that is incorrect or fake would get amplified. Now, it's interesting. It says at 723 on Sunday evening, the conservative Internet personality Mike uh, Kernovich tweet, tweeted that Susan Rice had requested the unmasking of Americans connected to the Trump campaign. At 7.30, the owner of the Twitter account Micro Magic Jingle, which has now been suspended, noticed and began blasting out dozens of tweets and retweets about the story. Micro Magic Jingle is the latest incarnation of Microchip, a notorious pro-Trump Twitter ringleader once described by a Republican strategist as the Trump bot overlord. By 9 a.m. Monday, hashtag Susan Rice was being uh, tweeted nearly 20,000 times an hour. By 11 a.m., it was 34,000 times an hour. Wow. Microchip, this is why I caught my eye, is sa- he says that he's a freelance mobile software developer in his early 30s and lives in Utah. So he's close by. Oh. We could go probably try to find him. And, uh, and he's, yeah, he's him. our age, too. Apparently. So he's, he's supporting his candidate, right? Now, you could see if there was a story like, there, there were honestly stories that Hillary Clinton is a lizard person, right? <laughs> that story was being kicked around during the presidential campaign. We need to take another look at that, by right? the way. So if you amplify that with the way he's doing it by he puts it out and has computer programs that will just automatically keep retweeting and retweeting and retweeting. And then people keep seeing it over and over and over and then they keep retweeting and it just turns into this monster story. And that's kind of the problem is he's not really helping yeah, he's causing a bigger issue by just flooding the zone with the same story and flooding these ideas instead of just letting people naturally, you know, bring a story to light by you know this is interesting. Let's go. You know that. Yeah, he's trying to play with the way that way Twitter will amplify stories by just making so much traffic artificially. Is, is there any way to differentiate between a genuine retweet and a computer generated re- retweet? No. Re- I can't even say that. Yeah, not really. Huh. Well, that's dangerous. I mean, because you pointed out that there is a way to to tell uh, what tweets are coming from Trump and which one yes. is well, which ones are coming from a Trump staffer. There used to be, except now they have the same phones. Everyone, everyone's using iPhones now. Ah, apparently his Android was was gone now. You used to tell because President Trump would use an Android phone. And you, that was directly him. Now it's now it's pretty much his staffers do a very good job of getting of uh, presenting his voice. Yeah. Right. They they put it out there as if it was him speaking. So it's it's interesting how they've been able to uh, be able to grasp that. But um, not really. There's, I mean, unless you know who the person was that retweeted. But even then, you could make just a fake profile. You know, Twitter doesn't doesn't require you to be to have any sort hmm. of genuine credentials when you sign up. So you're telling me there's there's fake news on social media constantly. Yeah, and oh. that's why $14 million from Facebook and Firefox may not be enough to curb that. Right. And finally, if you like to put avocado on just about everything, you're in luck. If you can't make it to Brooklyn, well, you have to go to Brooklyn to do that. Oh. Three friends from Italy are opening avo- avocandoria? Avocado, avocado, but aria at the end. So okay. It's hard to say. Uh, what they call the world's first avocado bar. As soon as the stand opens in Brooklyn on uh, April 7th, which is Friday, diners can choose from a menu featuring toasts, smoothies, salads, and bowls, and, of course, specials. 
daily specials. The idea is painfully trendy, observes the Huffington Post. Eater.com, which is a food blog, thinks New York City has now officially become a parody of itself. Um, the owners <laughs> say they got the idea. This is, this is the part of the article that I laughed at. The owners say they got the idea when one member of the trio traveled to Mexico and discovered the fruit. They they had to go to Mexico to discover it. Yeah. Now there are three wow. there are three friends from Italy, so they might not have had exposure to avocado before. Okay. But once they exposed themselves to avocado, they thought, well, we should make a whole restaurant out of this, and then they're going to do that. Oh, like the rest of us haven't been. You know, you know what an avocado is. These guys apparently didn't. It's new information. They're like, I've discovered this fruit. And they're like, seriously? Yeah, I know, but I also had to go to Mexico to find out right. about it. So yeah. if you like avocado, there's a place where you can go and get yourself your fix. I'm starting to like it more and more. I'm putting it on salads and in tacos. And I'm, well, yeah. I'm even dipping in guacamole from time to time. Okay. So I'm venturing out into new territory. Wow. Did you do you have uh, older siblings, Terry? I have an older sister. Okay, so you probably you know weren't bullied or tied up to anything when you were younger. Okay, well you know my brothers would occasionally tie me up to things, mm. and uh, which is why I thought this story was interesting because drivers in uh, Northeast Houston were doing double takes Wednesday when they spotted some poor guy duct taped to a yield sign. They never were that cruel. They never did anything like that, my brothers. Somebody called the cops, and they pulled up just in time to see a guy with a knife approach the man. Drop the knife or I'll tase you, one officer shouted. Turns out the guy with the knife was there to cut his friend down from the sign. They explained to the officers that Miguel Chavez was taped to the the sign after losing a bet on the Rockets-Warriors game. The cops helped get Chavez down and even gave him a ride home. Wow. Wow, that sounds like something for Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation. Yeah. They could appre- I wonder if they've had any wagers that have gone awry. Oh, wow. Well, one of them had to shave their head. Yeah. So the th- that, that depending on, you know, That's true. How, how it looked afterwards. Because yeah. if you look good after you shave your head, there is always that gamble. You could have a weird shaped head. I think I told the story before where my brother went up into a tree at the park to grab a kite or something. And this cop car pulls up. And he starts questioning my brother, and apparently the cops were chasing this guy that had fled on foot, and they thought maybe he climbed up into this tree, oh. which is probably the worst hiding place, especially when it's in the broad light of day, and there really aren't a lot of leaves on the tree. So, well, good. I'm glad that that guy's okay, and uh, it just goes to show you that uh, maybe don't uh, make wagers like that. <laughs> Or you'll end up almost getting tased by the police. So be a little more careful or, you know, be more informed as a sports viewer so you know which team is more likely to win. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going we're gonna to cover a topic that is good for me and, frankly, good for all parents. How to be more just and compassionate in parenting with our good friend Frank Ninavaji. It's a replay with Dr. Matt Townsend here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Emotions, 
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, every child is different, and so even if you think you know how to deal with one child's emotions, it can take a completely different strategy to deal with another. Uh, So what strategy do you use? Well, no matter what, it should avoid humiliation and embarrassment in any of the parent-child dialogue. And who better to teach us this than our good friend, Dr. Frank Ninavaji. He's the assistant clinical professor of psychiatry, child psychiatry, at Yale University School of Medicine uh, Child Study Center in New Haven, Connecticut. He returns to the show today to talk about a new parenting model for 2016. Dr. Ninavaji, great to have you back to the show. Thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure and an honor to, to be back with you. I love it, and I love this article that you wrote on Psychology Today about performance, accountability, a new parenting model for 2016. Talk to us about FACE. Um, I oh, this I don't know why this hit me so hard about the term FACE. Mm. Talk about that. Well, <clears throat> that term, that word has been used sort of uh, for a long time. And it usually means uh, not embarrassing another person when they've made a mistake and you want to maintain the relationship. Mm -hmm. Usually it's used uh, with adults and used in diplomatic uh, situations. Like saving face. We help people save face. Exactly. And I thought it would be very apropos to remind parents that that is a key concept and a key um, idea to always use when dealing with uh, children, because children are ultra-sensitive, and children remember. Mm. If they don't remember consciously, they remember emotionally. Yeah. And uh, uh, feeling embarrassed means feeling disrespected, and that can lead to anger, It can lead to upset, and it can lead to feelings of humiliation, which in turn add up to a sense of low self-esteem. So a lot of us as parents, we may be parenting using a little too much embarrassment or humiliation, um, and you're saying in the end that could adversely affect self-worth, self-esteem. It could, and that kind of uh, connects with ideas of blame and guilt. In general, um, each of us doesn't have to make another person feel guilty by blaming them. Each of us has an intrinsic module deeply within our brain and heart to feel if we're a normal person, a Mm. typical person. We have that built in, a feeling of internal guilt for something that we've done wrong. And it really doesn't have to be endorsed or enhanced by an outside source in a heavy-handed way. It, it, it could, we, each of us could be reminded of it in a sort of mild, light, light-handed, constructive manner. And that's a very good way to do it as a reminder a thou shalt do this and a thou shalt not do this, but not in a heavy-handed, blaming, ultra-guilt-provoking way, hmm. which embarrasses. Because the reason, psychologically, is that that shuts down the child. That makes the child feel fearful, 
upset, angry, and not opened and re- and available to learn and engage and have a dialogue to learn a better way of performing. Mm. So really, you're, it's about – I don't need to have an e- external uh, kind of guilt or shame focus. It's, they're going to do it naturally if they're just informed. The, the normal typical child, which is the, the, the bulk of all children, will. That's yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. So, talk about how this turns into development. Then, so what should my pattern of trying to develop better habits, better you know skills, tools with my children? How should I go about doing it? Well, uh, in that whole series on psychology today, <clears throat> um, on parenting, I've always said, and in the book that I wrote on biomental child development, <clears throat> I've always said that for me. Uh, the three big pillars of parenting are nurturance, discipline, and living example. Mm. So those are the strategic modes, tools, strategies to use. And actually, I really think living example, which sometimes is called modeling, uh, is the, the strongest. And that's how parents can convey this information in the most uh, real-life way in real time, by living example, by modeling appropriate behavior, appropriate emotions. I call that kind of uh, interaction, that kind of dialogue, which is both uh, that kind of communication, which is verbally expressive and also uh, non-verbally expressive. I call it transactional sensitivity. Being Trend. acutely sensitive to where you are as a parent uh, emotionally, <clears throat> where your child is at emotionally, and then engaging with your child, both verbally and non-verbally, but most of the, m- many times the engagement is non-verbal, you know, doing something right. together. And parents have to be – so th- this takes it, I think, to a whole new level. This really is do what I'm doing, don't do what I say to do. Only, right. Yeah. Right. Hopefully the saying reinforces the doing. Right. Hopefully. And, but that would then demand that the parent also be modeling, nurturing behavior and modeling discipline. That's exactly right. Consistency. Yeah. Boy, that's the hard part right there, Frank. That's the rub. That's the rub. That's the rub. (laughs) Is um, because as as a psychiatrist, it really is. So much of this is our parenting. It's. I mean, we we like to kind of blow it off to genetics or genes or you know anxiety or depression or a diagnosis, but in the end, too, so much of this is even how we just parent around all of these other things. That's what uh, used to be called the facilitating environment. So it can facilitate either, quote-unquote, goodness or badness, yeah. uh, optimal, uh, constructive, adaptive development, or maladaptive development. Oh, man. And it's real. It's totally real. And, and again, I guess that, that makes it, it – we have to choose to be good parents. We have to choose to get in and be intentional, it sounds like. As adults, that's it. Choose life. Choose goodness. Choose adaptation to survive, right? 
And part of this, too, gets into how we create healthier children in regards to their emotions, with regards to their emotions. Because we, our goal, it seems like developmentally, is to make – is to help facilitate emotional literacy for our children. That's right. That's right. Um, we, we can't just assume that um, children nowadays especially are, gonna, are going to know what emotions are and how to label them because too much is going on in the environment because of electronics and all the devices that are going on and all the stimuli through uh, screen media. <clears throat> And it's all very chaotic. It's tremendously chaotic, and it's very mixed up. A lot of mixed messages going on. And uh, what's called political correctness has blurred all sorts of boundaries between uh, what's right, wrong, good, bad, what we should say, what we should not say, what we can say, what we can't say. So it's very difficult for a child to make sense out of what they're feeling inside, what truly is going on, how to label it, and how how to position it in their lives internally, in their family, and then when they leave the house in terms of the social situation and context they find themselves, like in school, and then when they do watch the, the larger uh, social situation, for instance, on television, to sort of see how that fits mm. consonantly or dissonantly with what's going on. Well, I've, I've even seen that with some of the political talk and discussion where my younger children will see a comment made by one of the candidates and think, that seems like bullying, Dad. We learned that as bullying. <laughs> And um, and then I'm so now I'm having a conversation of if a political candidate is bullying another, because he says to me that feels like bullying, and I, I just open up a really interesting conversation with my kids. Well, I think that's the way to do it, not to make an, not to come to an immediate conclusion, but to examine the performance yeah. and to uh, pose questions. Say, well, let's look at what's going on. And let's try to define what is bullying, what isn't bullying, and see if bullying is occurring, how it's occurring, what level of bullying it is, how the two people involved in the situation are responding. So I I use – let me make sure I get this straight, Frank. I use use the performance that I'm seeing – and we try to just kind of um, – then I bring my child in and we talk about the performance. Mm. I don't have to talk about – if they were the one that didn't perform quite right, I don't have to beat them up. I can just take their performance and set it aside and we talk about it as if it's like a third entity. Exactly right. Okay. The performance. The performance. Yeah. Because there's uh, more bang for the buck when you look at the performance and uh, – formulate questions about the performance, Hmm. because then that has a halo effect, and children will look at their own performance, and it opens up a whole myriad of questions in their minds about how they're behaving and how others are behaving around them, rather than simply coming to, 
a closed-ended conclusion. Good, bad, right, wrong, good, bad, right, wrong. Right. And if I guess I'm normally we would say, oh, don't do don't hit your brother. That's stupid. You and then we we beat them up for hitting their brother. Yeah. You're saying separate the the performance of hitting your brother and and then talk about it with them as if as 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 a performance, as an act and why right. we can do it. And but ask the questions to them. Let them just let them explore it. Exactly. Right. Exploring the behavior. Mm. Right. 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 Because that opens up the possibility that there that there are options or that there were options. And why would somebody use hitting rather than shaking hands, rather than running together, rather than playing a game, Mm. rather than doing some other activity? I mean, it sounds like a no-brainer, right? But this is, I guess, where the discipline comes in, right, Frank? Because I, I might instead just react to the moment. Yeah, react. And then all of a sudden, my kid isn't learning about performance adjustment. He's learning about personality adjustment. Like I'm beating up his, I'm beating up his psyche. Well, that's where when you use that word react, that's where emotions come in and emotional literacy. <clears throat> it's learning how to modulate our own emotions so that they don't pop out impulsively Mm. and how that we can feel them. And as we start feeling the the heat and the fire of those emotions, pause, pause, think, understand that we are feeling that heat and not let it just spout out, but sort of temper it, attenuate it, and maybe transform it into something kind of suitable to the situation, constructive and adaptive to the situation. And, and you can be honest with your kid. Like, okay, dad's just counting to 10 right now because dad's mad about what's going on and I want to control that better. That's a living example yeah. of impulse, impulse control. And again, I'm finally – I'm modeling for You're my modeling. kids. yeah. Okay, let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Frank Ninavaji, one of our uh, favorite uh, parenting experts and child psychiatrist uh, from Yale University. You can't get better than that, but he has so many great insights. Um, if you go to Psychology Today, you can you can find a bunch of articles from him, and uh, we're grateful to have him back. We'll take a break, come back, continue this discussion about how we parent. Uh, and model and teach um, better emotional management by focusing on performance. Um, Powerful stuff, folks, and emotional literacy. It's all up next. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. To the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Dr. Frank Ninavaji. He's the Assistant Clinical Professor of Child Psychiatry at Yale University School of Medicine. Also uh, is there at the Child Study Center in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, really, folks, to get uh, to get Dr. Ninavaji on the line with us, truly an honor. Go check out um, his writings that you can find at... Um, I guess his non-academic writings. If you go to Psychology Today, just wonderful articles. And the neat thing about Dr. Ninavaji is he 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 talks 
he, he gives you everything you need. Like there, his a normal article might be three pages. He'll give you six, but it's deep, and it's uh, I think it's such important stuff. So, Doctor Frank Ninavaji, welcome back. Right. Keep writing. Thank you. You got to keep writing, my friend. And you and the books. What's your latest book out, Frank? Well, the book on uh, biomental child development, perspectives on psychology and parenting, is kind of the book. That's the book. That's it the has book. Everything in it. So and, far. Well, so far you've put it all together. Um, I've tried. Talk a, talk a little bit about the emotional side of of our children and their motivation. Um, one of the reasons why I love emotional intelligence is because it really is a core, it's a key understanding around how to motivate your children and how to motivate people. Talk about human motivation. What am I supposed to do with my kids that just aren't motivated to do something? Well, that's a good question. (laughs) When kids aren't motivated, um, it's always um, sort of complex. Figuring out why someone, especially a child, isn't motivated. Ordinarily, a child won't know why they're not motivated if you ask them. Mm. If you do press the matter, they'll say, I'm bored. And uh, that's kind of always a frequent response. And boredom, uh, on one level, can mean uh, I'm not interested I'm not interested in what you're presenting to me in the environment. I'm not interested in the opportunities that are available to me that you, as the adult, are structuring my environment with. So you have to look at what the opportunities are in that child's environment that the child is experiencing as boring and not interesting. Now... Ordinarily, um, those have to do with uh, academics, have to do with reading, writing, doing homework, doing uh, chores that they regard as boring, like cleaning their rooms or doing yard work. So we know as adults uh, that uh, those are critical and fundamental necessities. So I guess the idea is to spruce them up. We have to spruce them up to make them as, uh, and I guess I put that in the, in the article, as glaringly exciting mm-hmm. and interesting as we can, <laughs> which means we have to use inspiration and we have to use creativity and also some of those um, psychological strategies <clears throat> that have been used in the past in psychology, which means pairing them up with more um, desirable activities that the child or adolescent uh, uh, seems to really, really, really want. Like a cell phone. If they want their cell phone, do we pair that up with, great, we need the room cleaned? You can. That seems, is that healthy? I mean, yeah, I wonder. It's healthy, right, right. Or a food, Mm -hmm. or going out to a certain restaurant, or um, getting a certain treat if it's a younger child. Yeah. You, know, you have to pair it up with something that they regard yeah. as desirable, um, but within reason. You can't be unreasonable. Right. Uh, you know, and, and it can't be maladaptive or unhealthy. So if you pair it up 
and have them do the less preferred activity first, and then right away in close proximity, the uh, preferred activity or reward, then it usually works. And yeah, and I guess the key to that too is the motivation. You have to go, you have to get into your child to find out what motivates them. Exactly right. You really have to be sensitive and aware of what they feel is salient, important, relevant, meaningful to them at that stage of their development because mm-hmm. it does change. What what do you mean by biomental? In your book, Biomental Child Development, mm. uh, we all want to develop our children, but you, you use the word biomental, which I, to me is a new word. Explain that to us. It is a new word. I coined that Did you term. coin it? You made it up. I made it up. Uh, so what does it, it mean? Because... I mean, instead of just developmental, biomental. Because in my training at Yale, <clears throat> in, uh, uh, infant, when I trained in the early 70s, Yale was the, the place to train. And uh, they did a lot of work on infant development at that time. And early on, I was thinking of becoming uh, an infant psychiatrist. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. That uh, field was emerging. Then it sort of faded out, and uh, things sort of crystallized around child psychiatry and then child and adolescent psychiatry. But in order to... um, uh, train in, in infant psychiatry, we had to uh, see infants and very, very young children from maybe a month old to six years old, and we had to test them. We had to do infant, what was called infant testing, Wow! and we had to use all the old-fashioned physical tests. Develop, they call them developmental tests that the, that the um, psychologists <clears throat> from the last hundred years devised the Bailey scales and uh, uh, Stanford-Binet scales. Those were the original IQ scales, hmm. tests. And now everything has been replaced with, uh, you know, Wechsler tests and various other neuropsychological tests. <clears throat> and those early tests were like Montessori um, games and blocks. It was a very physical thing. So you had cubes and squares and uh, diamonds, and you had to have the child draw. And so it was a very physical thing because the child was very physical. Right. The mind was embedded in the body. The body was embedded in the mind very, very early on, for at least the first three years of life. And that impressed me. But nobody really talked about it. We thought we were just sort of working with the infant or the uh, nursery school child or the kindergarten child. So throughout the years, even when I was dealing with eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds, even when I was dealing with adolescents, I saw that they are so engrossed in their physical bodies, but yet at the same time, they are mental, emotional, thinking beings that have a, a heart, a spiritual life. So I thought, let me talk about development from that point of view, but as a psychiatrist, I couldn't talk about you know, t- 
pointedly the spiritual life. Right. So I thought I would... Uh, <clears throat> in psychiatry, there was the phrase biopsychosocial. And I thought, I didn't want to bring in that because that was brought in already for, for the last 30, 40 years. I want to concentrate on the individual because people forget about the individual. And I want to concentrate on the individual child and the individual child's dignity as a person in and of him, herself. Hmm. Uh, you know, uh, placed in society, but let's concentrate on the individual. So I coined the term biomental, hmm. that that unit is both biological and psychological, all rolled up into one. Because sometimes as a parent, we might just think of it as bio, biological, a body, and when we're disciplining it, you're making the point that it's not just a body, it's a being, it's, it's an entity, being. and it has sensitivities and memories and, and, and values, and it hurts. And so you must honor that or you will, lose, you will crush face. I don't know what you call from it. Day, exactly, from day one. Hmm. In the beginning, early on in child psychiatry, <clears throat> many, many psychiatrists did not regard the infant as a psychological entity, they thought it was, and this was a very sort of uh, hurtful expression that they would use, but, and I didn't like it very much, they thought it was just uh, <clears throat> a pulsating neurophysiologic bundle oh, of flesh and blood. Yeah. And I never liked that. No. Because I knew from day one that was a human being. Even though that little human being, that little infant, couldn't fully see or talk or hear or respond or wasn't really coordinated, it was a life. It was a human life mm. in development. In st they call it in statu nascendi, in the state of being born, growing, unfolding. <clears throat> That's why I, I use that phrase, biomental. I love that. And to me, it does invoke that spiritual power, that potential spiritual side it's that, that has, that has to be there. honored, right? That's the, the thou. The, the, reverence for yeah. the infant, for the baby, for the child, mm. for the uh, middle childhood uh, little person, for the uh, adolescent and powerful. Very powerful. Frank, as, as we wrap up, um, what would you say as a parent that's maybe made mistakes, maybe honoring that, the biomental state of their children, um, and maybe seen them more as a pulsating bio than a powerful spiritual side as well? How do we, uh, how do we recover from that? I would say the first thing would be <clears throat> acknowledge the mistakes second thing would be to say, I am glad I made those mistakes. I am fortunate I made those mistakes because those are lessons I need to learn. Mm. I need to learn from. Number three would be figure out what those mistakes were and what the various other options could have been and then refine your behaviors with the more adaptive and um, develop biomental development enhancing behaviors and responses. So the, the refining is the development. That means you're developing. 
You're getting better. You're getting better, right. We're always learning if we're sensitive to learning right. and, and the fact that we need to learn. We need to improve continuously. Mm. And it's an adventure. Yeah. And a process, and the parents are going through the process just as much as the children are. Mm-hmm. They're just further down the road. They're just supposedly down the road. Good stuff. Well, Frank, we appreciate you again. I think it's the work you do is amazing. The book, go go look up for the book, Biomental Child Development: Perspectives on Psychology and Parenting. And uh, Frank, we'll have you back. Everybody, go look up uh, also Psychology Today, and just look up Frank Ninavaji. And uh, you'll have access to a lot of wonderful writings by him. Dr. Frank Ninavaji, appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Yeah, we'll have you back. Truly honored. And he, I love uh, the, the spiritual side of this too, folks. These, these are beings. These are, they're not just bundles of flesh, right? These are, these are human beings. And in process, right, in development... But we have to honor the bio side and the mental side they're, they're, and the spiritual side. There's a very real powerful, um, you know, a, a being that's growing, that's changing, that's developing. Powerful. That's why the role of parent is should not be taken lightly, folks. Uh, nor should the role of just fellow human being. The, this world is full of people walking around that just need to have you recognize that they're real, that they're there. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Here on The Matt Townsend Show, we are lovers of weird and obscure holidays. We talk about them a lot because there are just some things that deserve our recognition. And Caitlin Thomas is here with us to share what today's special holiday is and how it can make us better. Caitlin, welcome back. Good morning. Good happy morning. Thursday. Thank you. Uh, and and happy what day is it today? Hap- April 6th is ha- Sorry Charlie Day. Happy Sorry Charlie Day. Now, is this what Lucy tells Charlie Brown after she yanks the football away <laughs> when he tries to kick it? Well, kind of. Let me explain. So, it's actually a day... To reflect upon the rejections that we have all experienced in life and realize that the world kept spinning despite them. Sorry, Charlie. Maybe next time. Oh. You know? And we were just talking about a rejection. (laughs) You know what? I have a lot. I'm sorry. I have some fantastic stories. I really do. Um, But you know what? Rejection happens to everybody. Last night, I, I regret deciding to go down and meet this guy that seemed really nice and he ended up being really not nice. Rejected regret but it's fine i've moved on so he didn't really reject you he was just more kind of apathetic yeah okay but you know whatever um you know rejection i've I've been applying for some you know full-time jobs now that i'm getting ready to graduate You just interviewed the other day interviewed so that was that was not a rejection but a couple of them have you know without even an interview have said hey sorry we're not interested so it's like Mm. dang it but like sorry charlie maybe next time um, wanting to buy a new car but getting rejected because I don't have enough money. That's just the world telling me stuff. Is there a Charlie in mind or is it just – it kind of rhymes. So sorry, I think Charlie. Just rhymes. Okay. Sorry, Charlie. Um, my future roommate, I'm moving in with somebody, um, a friend of mine. She's buying in a townhome anyways. But I asked her if we could buy a puppy and she said no. 
reject. Sorry, Charlie. Sorry, Charlie. Maybe next time. Or what about the when you walk in the pantry? Do you ever pull the the Miss? Le- I I miss Lehigh. Well, she was my director, so oh, okay. it doesn't really work on her. <laughs> um, um, sometimes have you ever walked into the pantry wanting to eat a bowl of cereal and then you're just rejected because there's the cereal's gone? Oh. Sorry, Charlie. It's usually Maybe the milk time. that's gone, that though. That, too. Mm. Oh, that's where you've, you've poured the bowl and you open mm-hmm. the fridge and there's no milk. So, I mean, rejection is everywhere. We mm-hmm. all experience it. The world moves on. What about you, Jeff? What rejections have you faced lately? Oh, lately? Gosh, seems like it's every day. Um, mm, uh, I kind of was hoping, well, I'm not hoping, but I was wondering if I was going to be able to stay home from work and, and sleep today. And uh, no, sorry, Charlie, I'm here. Sorry, Charlie. Sorry, listeners. Maybe next time. <laughs> you know, it happens. It happens to the best of us. But we can learn from the rejections that we face in life because a lot of people think that you know, when they, they get told no, and it, it can be really hard. You get told no over and over and over, especially for things that you really want. It can get a little bit uh, upsetting, but I think there's something to learn in it. You know what? What? When I applied for this job, Don Shaline, well, I'd, uh, we'll call him uh, D. Shaline, D- called me up oh. and said, we're not going to hire you for this position. See? But we're not going to hire anybody for this position. Uh, and then about four months went by and they called me up and they said, okay, we'll hire you. Mm, see? And if you would have just given up on it, like, he, I don't know. I think that there's something to learn. Like, don't give up. Just because you get told no doesn't mean you should give up. But also, like, small things like like this boy last night who obviously met me and was not interested <laughs> at all and was so rude. I hope well, he's not listening. But if you are, that was rude. He's probably on his phone. Mm. Yeah, that's like what he was doing all night, right? And that's fine, but like and and I could be really upset and I could just let it bother me and fester and you know like you know lower my confidence or whatever. Or you could just brush it off and say, "You know what? Some that's just how it is sometimes, you know, that's going to happen. Sorry, Charlie, maybe next time. I like this holiday. I think it's good." So how are you going to celebrate it today? I'm going to brush off what happened last night. Just Good for it you. Just gonna, it was so ac- It was so funny. I was driving home and I was like, this is perfect for my segment tomorrow. Yeah. My life is just – my life is a giant – I should I should have a, like a TV show. So maybe we should just start calling you Charlie, but we'll put a Y on the end because that's Charlie, kind of the female version the female of it. female version of Charlie. That's the saddest book ever, by the way. Oh. Charlie. Well, I didn't mean to turn it Moment into a silence. sad thing. <laughs> So go watch a different Charlie go and watch, watch Charlie Brown Charlie. and you'll but smile. But today, I think everybody just needs to remember that sometimes you don't get everything in life. We don't get everything we want. You know, sometimes you're going to be told no. Um, don't give up. Don't let it, you know, beat you down to the ground. Say, say, you know what? Sorry, Charlie. Maybe next time. That's what today is all about. Well, sorry, Charlie, but we have to end the segment because it's time to go to break. But thank you once again for an excellent uh, yeah segment and we wish you luck on your next date and we can't wait to hear about it <laughs> i'm sure you will <laughs> caitlin thomas is her name go out and celebrate sorry charlie day it's today thursday april 6th we'll take a break when we come back we will continue the fun and the discussions here on the matt townsend show KBYU-FM, HD2, Provo.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Matt Townsend, who is still in St. George. And uh, no matter how much information we offer up to the listeners, he uh, he's not taking the threat seriously. So I think tomorrow we're releasing his social security information. We, w- we uh, wish you a safe return, Matt, and we hope you come back soon. He'll be back very soon. Anyway, it is Thursday here on the Matt Townsend Show and pretty much everywhere else. And uh, we've got some fun topics coming up, including a couple of stories that I'm going to want to share with BYU Sports Nation involving the uh, Vince Lombardi trophy, as well as uh, a story that we told last hour about a sports wager gone wrong. So that's why you should never bet on sports or anything else for that matter. We will also be uh, talking about a marriage proposal that went wrong. Um, So, yeah, everything in this hour is things that went awry, which turns out to be most days and most segments on the Matt Townsend show. But today is no different. Things don't go awry that often. No, but the stories that we share. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Like the show, I think, pretty well. I Well, yeah, I think so, too. You know, you can't go wrong when you talk about pizza and Oreos and Doritos. That will put any show on the right track. Yeah. And apparently it means we're cool, too, but that we love all those things. As we talked about in the last hour, things that that make us cool, Doritos, pizza, Oreos, Google, video games. Right. I'm kind of starting to think that maybe Terry just made a list of the things that he liked – and said, here's what makes you cool. Could be. Because there's some overlap there. Quite a bit. Well, that, I might just be immature. No, you're cool. Come on. Here we go. All right. Um, so we'll get to all that fun stuff. And uh, like I said, we'll be talking with BYU Sports Nation at the end of this hour, as well as uh, replaying an interview that we had with Joanna Marchant, uh, Mind Over Body. Hmm. Interesting topic uh, just here in a bit. But for right now, let's head over to Terry South and find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Steve Bannon, former executive chairman of Breitbart and current chief strategist at the White House, threatened to quit over a clash with President Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, political reports. Bannon believes that Kushner, who has taken on an increasingly important position within in the administration over the last few weeks, is trying to undermine his populist approach, according to the report. And the president, he shows favor as, as it continues by favoring, well, uh, shows his favor by piling responsibilities on upon responsibility. Kushner, for one, has taken on a shockingly broad portfolio of tasks, which range from striking a peace deal between Israel and Palestine and solving the opioid crisis to acting as, as a liaison between both Mexico and China. And he's also trying to find business solutions for government problems. And he just has everything just keeps getting piled. The guy's like 34, 35 years old. And, wow. and Trump's just like, you do it. Take care of it. Go. Run with it. And and Steve Bannon's like, Did, wasn't I sitting on a committee that was going to solve government problems? Okay, cool. Go ahead. The biggest problems I have at 34 is trying to get gasoline in the lawnmower without igniting it. Right. So some of the reports this morning, Bannon told his colleagues, if my talents aren't needed here, I can take them somewhere else. 
Cricket, cricket. Yeah, Bannon has uh, denied the report as total nonsense. Wow. We'll see. President Trump said he wants to fast track a $1 trillion infrastructure plan and packages with with health care or tax reform legislation in a bid to get Democratic lawmakers support. Trump made the announcement in an interview with the New York Times on Wednesday. The 10-year infrastructure plan was expected to be unveiled later this year with a $1 trillion going towards modernizing U.S. roads, bridges, airports, electrical grid, and water systems. I'm thinking about accelerating it. I'm thinking about putting it with another bill. Could be health care, could be something else, could be tax reform, Trump told the Times. He provided no timeline on how soon the infrastructure plan would be rolled out, but said Democratic lawmakers are desperate for infrastructure and would be more likely to back Republican plans for health care or tax reform if they were packaged with the infrastructure initiative. He's trying to make a deal. Hmm, let's make a deal. Instead of pushing through something people don't like, you package it with other things, maybe make a compromise, and maybe something happens. Kind of like uh, the triple play package where you have to take the home phone service. You may not want the home phone, (laughs) but that internet and cable. That's that's true. Absolutely. Uh, moving on, one president, one of President Trump's central campaign promises was to build a big, beautiful, powerful wall along the border with Mexico to keep out undocumented immigrants and drug smugglers. But according to John F. Kelly, the Homeland Security Secretary, this wall will not actually stretch across the entire border. He says it's unlikely that we will see a wall or physical barrier from sea to shining sea. A wall will instead be built where it makes sense, while the other portions of the border might include high-tech fencing or other technology. Kelly's statement was the clearest admission from the administration that the wall might not be built on the full 2,200-mile border, which seems kind of unconceivable. I mean, it doesn't hmm. seem logical to build something that long right. and expensive. Kelly said he's committed to erecting the structure where the men and women say we should put it. I don't know what that means. And, it, and it, it's kind of an odd... Quote, yeah. the men and women, or people that are experts on this say we should put the wall here. That's where we plan on doing it. He says it's looking as numerous variations of Trump's promised wall. Might be a fence. Might just be more patrolling from the Border Patrol. I'm not sure how that works. We know it can be done, though, because look at the Great Wall of China. Right. And nobody died making that, and well, it didn't take forever to make. Right. Sure, they did. <laughs> they did. Um, was, was that what the Matt Damon movie was all about? No, it was about dragons. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I Trying it. to keep Mexicans out of the United States, I think that's what it was about. Tuesday marked the deadline for the first bids for Border Wall prototypes, which will be built and tested in San Diego. That was Tuesday. They had to have their bids in by Tuesday. There was like 600 companies that were said to be trying to bid for the the job there because it's, you know, it's money. Yeah. And finally. A job is a job. I actually have two finally, so I'll do this quick. Researchers have turned to 57,000 women over the age of 55 in the Women's Health Initiative Program to conduct the largest study of its kind on the relationship between oral health and mortality. And reporting in the Journal of American Heart Association, they noted that how many teeth you have in your mouth at a given point in time is a pretty good indication of your overall health status. <laughs> okay. As one researcher told CNN. That is a good gauge. Well, you think about it. If your teeth are falling out, there might be a health problem. Right. Because they're not supposed to fall out, right? So Me it's did. kind of a logical, you know. Cut not, the Oreos out of your diet. Right. So researchers felt it was important to study the population of older women since menopause has a negative effect on oral health. So you, 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 you check during that time, and they have some more indicators, I guess. The research did not find a direct correlation between gum disease and heart disease, seeing this was an American Heart Association journal study. Mm. So your teeth, 
might be an indicator of your health. I'll count them during the break. This might just be self-serving for myself, but the Masters Golf Tournament is this weekend. I didn't know you were such a big golf fan. No, but it's one of those things you can just turn on and just sort of... I thought you were you would be more of a, uh, a fan of Masters of the Universe than the Masters Tournament. No, I've I actually watched some of those okay. recently. <laughs> they don't hold up well. But uh, Dustin Johnson, the world's number one golfer, suffered a freak injury Wednesday when he fell down a flight of stairs, making him questionable to play in the Masters, which begins today. At roughly 3 p.m. on Wednesday, Dustin took a serious fall on a staircase in his Augusta rental home, read a statement from his agent. He landed very hard on his lower back and is now resting. Although quite uncomfortably, he has been advised to remain immobile. They're icing and there's medication and all kinds of stuff he hopes to be able to play. So you have the world number one golfer. Have you ever heard of Dustin Johnson before? No. Yeah. So, but you've heard of Tiger Woods. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's not playing. Oh. He's also not very good anymore. Oh. He's trying to come back from injuries. He's been kind of sporadic and he's having some back spasms, which. He's got all the money in the world, though. Well, yeah, but I mean, if you're looking at something to watch. I think a lot of a lot more people were aware this this was happening when Tiger Woods was playing. How are so many golfers getting injured? You well, would think uh, that the this, only way that that could happen is if they're playing like Happy Gilmore. Well, this guy fell down the stairs, so yeah, it's I, just weird. Yeah, it it seems like it it's a safe sport. Well, no, just because, not on your knees, I or, guess, or your back. If you have, if you're prone to back problems mm. and you're, the twisting and the torque of, of hitting the ball that hard can cause back problems. Wow. So, but yeah, so the number one golfer in the world may not golf. He probably will, but I mean, injured. And then the golfer everyone knows, of course, isn't golfing anymore. So that that kind of kills the excitement for the Masters, which brought in a lot more viewers when it was uh, Tiger Woods versus the world. And Jack Nicholas isn't going to play. Well, he hasn't played in quite a while. Yeah. That's like That's, the other golfer you know, right? Yes, gotcha. exactly. And the only reason I remember that is because it's so close to Jack Nicholson. Right. Not that you could probably pick him out if he walked in the room. Um. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, just saying. I didn't. I did name Happy Gilmore, a fictional golf. You picked an Adam Sandler shooter movie. McGavin. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> But the Masters is fantastic because it kind of continues on the month of April being like the greatest sports month of all time. Yeah. Baseball opening day happens. WrestleMania Thank happens. You. The Masters, the NFL draft, the yeah. NBA and NHL playoffs both get going. Yeah. Every sport you get something. And then the final four also, you get something to watch in every sport, no matter what your flavor is. April That's is the true. month to love. Yeah. Wow. Mm. We should have you talk to Sports Nation. Uh, so when do, I just want to know when they hand out the green jacket. That's about Sunday at, what, 6 o'clock Eastern. Again, anything that I know about sports, I likely learned from the movies. Right. I only know there's a green jacket because of the And, film. and it's Happy awkward. Gilmore. You have a bunch of people in a log cabin, and they there's awkward handshakes. Usually they miss whatever handshake people are, like, either left hanging or it's awkward, and they do, like, the fish handshake. Or oh, the fish. There's some people going for high fives for some reason, and they miss, and it's just... It's or like odd. the pull-in where you take their hand and then you pull their arm into yeah, you the, really the, close. That's I, I've heard people call that the Trump. That's how he does it. <laughs> yeah. You so, never let go. Yeah. So it's all kind of weird. But it's interesting to, to sit and watch a beautiful setting, Augusta, Georgia, right? And they have trees and they have – it's just fun to watch. Birds are chirping. Some guy's whispering. And now he lines up on the next putt. And then the crowd, like, oh, they applaud. It's great, you know. And it's just kind of a, 
you get into this sort of, of rhythm with the with the tournament, and uh, you can just kind of sit back and waste an afternoon. Until wow. Until my wife yells downstairs, what are you doing? Watching golf. Why? Go mow the lawn. I'm like, okay. She gets mad. She doesn't like golf. Her father would watch golf, and so she'd have to sit there and suffer through it. So when I do it, she just gets angry. Speaking of mowing the lawn, Mm. uh, I wasn't kidding when I said, you know, because you fill up the gas tank that you go, you go to the gas station, you Mm -hmm. get put gas in there, and then you go to put it in the lawnmower. I think I had too much gas in the can because it started spilling all over the place. This is the first time I used this lawnmower, and uh, now it's like really struggling to start. Oh. So maybe once all that gasoline burns off that got spilled, maybe, maybe it'll start working again. So you overfilled? No, well, maybe. Okay. But it was it was like coming out the side of the of the gas can, and I was just worried. I said I told my wife, "Can you please stand by the hose when I start, or stand by with the hose yeah. when I start this? So and just in case I ignite when I cause the spark that ends my existence, right? Because yeah, you could just uh, self emulate. Yeah, you wanted that based on the short amount of time that I've been in this home, and you know the stories I've shared on the show. We know that that is a very real possibility. Right, fire. Yeah. Was but, this the first time you've mowed the lawn this year? Uh, I didn't even mow. I just wanted to get it to start. I put oh. it to, put the mower together, and I yeah, yeah. I really need a mm. rider or, or someone to fill up the gas tank for you. That would be great. Apparently, if I had like a Jeeves <laughs> or a Jefferson, just you got a neighbor. Uh, I I do have some neighbors. Go hey, yes. I don't know what I'm doing. Fill this up. <laughs> They'll give you a weird look, but just it's fine. Just it do took it. me ten minutes to figure out how to get gas out of the can because it apparently it's one of those ones where you you tilt it and then you're supposed to push the nozzle and oh. that releases the gas. Really? So luckily, I finally found the instructions that were printed on the side of the can. I've never had a wow. can like this where you had to push yeah. the nozzle in order to get the gas out. Usually it just comes out. Right. You just pour it out. Yeah. Wow. So I'm learning all sorts of things about life and about myself. <laughs> that, you sound uh, like a millennial. That um, You really do. I mean this this constant fight that you're not a millennial but you keep demonstrating millennial behavior. I guess the millennial behavior really comes in uh, – I end up you know Googling most things to figure out how to right. do it the right way. Well, you're just I'll using, give you that. I'll you're give you using that. the resources at hand, right? <sighs> you don't know how to do something. You Google it. Oh, okay. I get that. And you take care of it. Now, if you- So you break something and then you got to call somebody else. Yeah. If you want to set your house on fire oh. or if you want to kill your grass, okay. I'm the guy nice. to talk to. You're offering this service. Yes. Okay. Uh, so Maybe a, a, a new sponsor of the program. <laughs> Maybe. Jeff's ready-made catastrophe. Wow. See, there you go. That was a ready-made endorsement right there. Wow. Well, I don't know which one of these to share because they're all kind of sports-related in a way. Um, Let's do this one. How did you propose to your wife, if Uh, you don't mind me asking? Was it a big, grand thing? Okay, it was simple, right? Very simple, yeah. So this guy uh, decided that he was going to paint his marriage proposal on the side of the Shoreway Shopping Center in Ohio. Hmm. So an officer was called for a report of vandalism on March 19th on one wall in red spray paint were the words, Michelle, marry me, I love you, 31717, familia, with a heart. Hmm. 
The graffiti spread across 30 feet, police said. The police department didn't have any suspects until it received an anonymous tip on March 21st. Hopefully it wasn't the woman that he was proposing to. Right. Uh, the caller reported uh, Kyle Stump had recently proposed to his girlfriend named Michelle. And according to the police report, the handwriting on the shopping center matched a written statement from Stump in 2012. They match the handwriting. That That's not fair because so, your, graf- your graffiti is going to be different than your handwriting. Right. Especially if it's covering 30 feet of a shopping center wall. It's right. going to be huge, right? Yeah. Not, that's not – I oh wouldn't well. say that's very reliable. Investigators call them – Maybe he dots his eyes with hearts or something. There you go. Yeah. Uh, they called him to the police station where he admitted to the unconventional proposal huh. and then he had a different proposal. Uh, he made his one phone call to his fiance and said, will you – Bail me out of jail. Right. Hopefully she said yes. It Mm. sounds like they're getting married, so that's great. Anyway, just think before you propose. The idea is is there. Um, Just maybe think of a different way to execute that one. But again, as we said earlier in the program, we like to help the people that that make poor decisions. We love everyone. We just – we want everyone to make better decisions. When we come back – We are going to be uh, replaying an interview that Dr. Matt conducted with Joe Marchant, who uh, is going to be talking about the science of mind over body. How much power does the mind have to heal the body when we return? This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, today, uh, you know, the idea that the mind can heal the body is usually chalked up to pseudoscience. But think about the placebo effect, where people report improved symptoms after taking bogus drugs and sugar pills. Clearly, the mind and body work together, but how? Well, our next guest may have some answers on that. She's written the book called uh, called Cure, The Science of Mind Over Body. Joe Marchand is a science writer and uh, has a Ph.D. in genetics and medical microbiology. And she's also a writer. And she joins us now live from the U.K. to help us understand the power of the mind over the body. Uh, Joe Marchand, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, thanks for having me on. So great to have you. Talk to me about uh, your book, uh, Cure, A Journey into the Science of Mind Over Body. What made you dive into this subject? I think it was just the fact that there is so much disagreement and so many strong feelings when it comes to whether the mind can heal the body. You have these claims of miracle cures on one side, healing thoughts, you know, often made by alternative therapists. Um, this idea that you can heal pretty much anything if you just change your perspective on life. Um, and then on the other, you've got skeptics who say that the whole idea that the mind can affect the body is deluded. Um, and I, I'm a scientist by training. I'm a science journalist now. So I just wanted to look at the research, really, to find out well, what, does, what do scientists really know about how the mind can affect the body? And is that important for our health? So you were looking, because with your scientific background, because there's a lot of, I guess, pseudoscience in this, you wanted to actually get to the scientific level and figure out what really do we know? Yeah, there's this idea that if the mind is affecting the body, it must be some sort of mysterious, magical healing force. But, but, but really, it's just biology. There's nothing paranormal 
going on there. You know, the, the mind and the brain are, are in, entwined. You know, the brain is regulating all aspects of our physiology. So I'm interested in, I guess, how do things work? Why do they work? And I think it's really important that we take a scientific approach to this topic because the mind doesn't magically cure everything. You know, for, for some things it's, it has an influence and for other things it, it doesn't. Sometimes it has dramatic immediate effects. Sometimes it's one subtle factor among many, for example, influencing our disease risk over time. So I think it is important that we, we don't just have this, oh, the, you know, general idea about the mind healing us and that we actually look at the science and the nuts and the bolts of what works and what doesn't. We, we've heard of the placebo effect, and I know you, you mentioned that in your book um, quite a bit. Talk about the placebo effect, for example. How does that tie, how does the mind, you know, create, I guess, a, a, a sense of healing or even pain tolerance? Yeah, the placebo effect is a really good example because it's kind of quite a pure effect, if you like, of our thoughts and beliefs affecting the body. So placebos are fake medicines, basically. So the placebo effect is describing this phenomenon where when people receive medical treatment, often they feel better, they improve, um, even if it turns out that that treatment was fake with no active ingredient at all. And it's often been dismissed in the past as kind of an illusion, if you like, this idea that people would have got better anyway. Um, and many people do get better over time, regardless of what treatment they receive. But, but neuroscientists are finding out that there's something else going on as well, that when people respond to fake treatments, they can actually measure biological changes in the brain of those people. And these changes are very similar to the changes that are caused by drugs. So, for example, when people respond to placebo painkillers, you get a flood of endorphins in the brain. These are natural pain-relieving chemicals. Um, and, in fact, opioid drugs like morphine and heroin are designed to, to, to mimic endorphins. They bind to the same receptors. So if you, if you take a placebo painkiller and your pain is eased, you haven't imagined that. You don't just think your pain is better when nothing has actually changed. There has been a biological change that has eased your pain, and it's exactly the same change as you would get if you took a painkilling drug. But then there are other examples, like Parkinson's disease, for example, which is caused um, when neurons in the brain that produce a neurotransmitter called dopamine die. When Parkinson's disease patients respond to a placebo, you see a, a flood of dopamine in the brain, hmm. of endorphins. Um, or even in altitude sickness, people can breathe fake oxygen and then they have a reduction in prostaglandins, which are chemicals that are responsible for many of the symptoms of altitude sickness. So this is a real measurable biological effect that is being triggered by people's thoughts and beliefs surrounding their treatment. And is it, is it a conscious thought? Does that matter, a subconscious thought? Or is it just the assumption, deep down, I'm taking the pill, it's going to work? There are different mechanisms. So conscious belief and expectation is definitely important. So in studies trying to tease this apart, people are more likely to experience placebo responses if they have um, high positive expectation for their treatment um, and if they're engaged with their treatment. And for example, this same placebo, for example, a sugar pill or a saline injection can have positive effects or negative effects, depending on what you're told about it. Mm. So that conscious expectation is definitely important. But there are other things going on as well. In some studies, honest placebos, where people know they're taking placebos, still work. And that may have more to do with things, for example, the, the social interaction with the doctor is seen as very important. So just that feeling of being cared for, you know, whether it's in a trial or the fact that you're receiving medical treatment seems to trigger some of these changes. There are also 
learned association. So if you take a drug a few times, your body learns the physiological response to that drug. So that if you subsequently take a placebo, your body automatically triggers the same response to it. And those work absolutely regardless of your conscious beliefs. You can know perfectly well that it's a placebo and that response will still happen. So there are lots of different things going on here. But hopefully by teasing them apart and research, we can come up with ways of harnessing them, um, both to make the drugs we take more effective, or in some cases to reduce drug doses, perhaps by alternating real drugs and placebos, um, or to come up with evidence-based therapies that don't involve drugs for conditions like chronic pain, for example. Researchers are using virtual reality therapies now to try and harness the role of the brain in those conditions. Wow. I mean, that is... It's powerful, and yet, I guess, really so unknown how it's all working. Yeah. We're gathering the data, but it's just it's a it's an early it's an early science, I guess. Yeah, we we definitely need more research on this. There are certain conditions that are have, that have been studied, like pain, depression, Parkinson's disease, where placebo responses are strong. Um, but there are bound to be lots of other mechanisms other mechanisms going on in other conditions that, you know, when, when people research those, there are going to be different pathways happening. Already we do know that when it comes to conscious expectation and belief, that the kinds of things that are most strongly affected are symptoms that you're consciously aware of, things like pain, nausea, depression, fatigue. Simply believing that you're going to get better isn't going to shrink a tumour, for example, or banish an infection um, or change the sort of physiological processes of disease, things like immune responses. But certainly for conditions that involve um, pain, depression, nausea, fatigue, things like choosing a doctor that you, you know, get on well with, that you respect and trust is going to be important. Feeling positively engaged with your treatment, visualizing the outcome that you want to see, all of those things are going to trigger stronger placebo responses when you take your drugs so that you can hopefully then benefit from, from both things, the active effect of the drug and stronger placebo responses. When it comes to things like immune responses for treating patients with autoimmune disease or um, organ transplant patients, there are trials going on with kidney transplant patients at the moment. Um, here it may be possible to reduce drug doses and therefore reduce the toxicity of those drugs and the side effects by perhaps alternating drugs and placebos. So there, there are different approaches in different kinds of conditions. Is it a universal thing to, I guess, to all humans, or are there some people that, that the effect won't work on? It, it varies a lot. It used to be assumed that if you responded to a placebo, you must be sort of neurotic and suggestible. <laughs> but researchers looking at how personality affects us are actually finding the opposite, that it's optimistic, engaged people who build strong relationships with their doctors who are most likely to have the strongest placebo effects, whereas neurotic, hostile people are, are least likely to respond. But depending on the circumstances, pretty much anyone can have a placebo response. So, um, you know, if it's, if it's something that you really believe in that you're taking or, you know, if you've taken a drug before and, and have had a positive response to it or your body has learned the response to it, um, then pretty much anybody can experience a placebo response. And it seems like the opposite is true or should be true. Somebody that, that then um, is told, you know, there's no help, there's no chance, this isn't going to work, would also be able to more likely not heal or not have the benefits of it. Yes, absolutely. So negative um, messaging. The, the patient's motivation and attitude is, is very important. Neuroscientists are discovering, particularly in conditions like chronic pain and depression, 
for example. And then there are also specific sort of negative effects. It's called the nocebo effect, where mm. you expect that something is going to harm you and then you start to have those symptoms. And, you know, this is, you get... Uh, situations of sort of mass hysteria, for example, or a lot of people fainting or throwing up, and it's kind of transmitted from person to person. And again, researchers are finding that there are real biological changes that underlie this. This isn't people just sort of imagining their symptoms. Those symptoms are real. Uh, and all of it is building a picture where the symptoms we experience, things like pain and, and fatigue and nausea, they're not sort of an inevitable consequence of the physical state of the body. That That is important, but psychological factors sort of how safe or under threat we feel are feeding into those symptoms as well. I mean, they're, they're warning signals, essentially. That's why we feel pain. It's a warning to us to change our behavior. And, and how the brain perceives the level of threat around us is telling, you know, it's it, it causing biological changes that ramp those symptoms up and down. So we do have a lot of control over the level of those symptoms that we experience. Wow, and our mind does. That's so powerful. We're speaking uh, with Dr. Joe Marchant, who is a writer and author of the book Cure, The Science of Mind Over Body. And let's take a break, come back, continue this interesting discussion about how your mind really can control your healing and and pain. The, the, the science is there uh, in a very scientific book uh, and a very scientific approach to the whole study of mind over body. Um, stick with us. Uh, I think groundbreaking, really. Hopefully blowing up some of your own myths, your own perceptions about the power of your mind. Stick with us. We'll be right back, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. To the Matt Townsend Show. Man, the power of your mind to heal and, uh, you know, and, and impact your pain. I mean, so, so interesting. The book is called Cure by Joe Marchant and the science of mind over body. She's taken a, a very scholarly, I think, academic. Uh, she's herself got so many different, uh, you know, She's got a great background for this. Genetics, medical microbiology, PhD in that area. And then as a writer, wanted to go figure it out. What is what is the research really saying? What power does our mind have over our body? And we're so excited uh, to continue the discussion. Joe Marchant, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi. Good to have you. Talk to us about this, um, like, in the end, is there? can we be taking this too far? Are we going... Could somebody rely too much on their mind to cure their disease or to eliminate their pain that they maybe don't get the help they need? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there are obviously limits to what the mind can do. Um, that The mind can't magic up a, a chemical that the body needs but doesn't have, for example. You know, in a diabetes patient, it can't suddenly produce insulin um, somebody with cystic fibrosis is not going to suddenly produce that missing lung protein that they need it the mind isn't going to be able to um, help the body when it's overwhelmed by something that's too great for it to hope to, too great for it to cope with um, serious infection or injury or cancer for example um, what it can do 
is work with neurotransmitters, hormones, the immune system, all those tools that the body naturally has available to reduce our symptoms and also to influence the physiological process of disease in some cases. But I think we need the scientific approach to understand when and how it can help and mm. when it can't help. And I think the, the concern is that if, if somebody loses that scientific approach and just says, oh, the mind can heal, as you get with some alternative therapist, then people might then not get the conventional treatment that they need, you know, when they really need it. So the cancer patient, for example, um, the mind could be very useful in terms of helping them to deal with the, the pain and the fatigue and the nausea caused by the chemotherapy, for example. And if that helps them to stick to their chemotherapy regime, that could also have very important um, influences on their outcomes. Um, but what I'm absolutely not saying is that we can throw out physical drugs and treatments. We still need those, but we need to use the two together, the, the conventional medicine um, with the effects of the mind, using them together in an intelligent way so that we can perhaps reduce our reliance on drugs and improve quality of life. Yeah, it seems like we, we tend to choose, we bifurcate, right? We choose one side or the other, and the, the message is probably somewhere right in the middle. How do we use the mind, which is why we've got to understand it so much more. What are some things we can be doing just in our own lives to maybe enhance our own use of the mind over our body? Well, we've talked a little bit already about the lessons from placebo research. So if you're suffering from chronic condition um, with these symptoms, just that the, that that attitude that you have to your symptoms and realizing that you have some control over them and that you don't have to be afraid of them can be really important. Um, and if you want to enhance placebo responses that you're getting from the drugs that you're taking, um, try and make a ritual out of taking those drugs. Um, experts in this field recommend, you know, sitting down, taking them at the same time and place every day, visualizing the improvement that you want to, to see. Or even without drugs, just things like... Um, distraction, for example, are more powerful than we realize. So there's this whole line of research into virtual reality therapy, which is treating some of the most severe pain in medicine in acute burns patients. Um, and they have to go undergo these horrifically painful wound care sessions. And being immersed in this virtual reality world is helping to reduce their pain by up to 50% in addition wow. to the pain relief they get from drugs. But at home, just things like actually going out and doing things that we enjoy and care about and spending time with people, sometimes that can be a scary thing to do if you're in a lot of pain because you think it's going to make the pain worse, but actually it is going to make the pain better. I mean, it depends, you have to follow the advice of your doctor, obviously, and make sure that there isn't, you know, a physical problem that that's going to exacerbate, but just in terms of the pain, focusing outwards and doing other things is helpful. But then the other, I, I spent half of my book looking at those sort of immediate effects, but then also um, in terms of... Um, throughout our lives. So stress, for example, and the effect that that has on disease risk. I think most people are familiar with the idea that right. chronic stress is bad for us. But I was shocked looking into it at just how broad ranging those effects are. So that, you know, this is the idea that when we're afraid or anxious, this triggers the fight or flight response. And that causes all sorts of physiological changes. So it affects the gut, for example, with um, circulation sort of blood being diverted away from the gut towards the brain and muscles so that you can respond to an emergency. Your blood pressure rises, your heart rate increases, um, stress triggers a branch of the immune system called inflammation. And all of these things are good in an emergency, but in the long run are increasing your risk of, of heart disease, of things like diabetes, of dementia and depression, um, 
inflammation triggers, uh, sorry, exacerbates autoimmune disease, um, allergies, makes us more susceptible to infection. Stress has even been linked to increased cellular aging. Um, so um, what I tried to do in the book was look at evidence-based ways that we can reduce stress, you know, what's been tested, what, what really works. Um, and, and mindfulness meditation is one of the best studied and neuroscientists are finding that a course of mindfulness meditation actually changes the physical structure of the brain in a way that reverses some of the changes caused by stress for example i also looked at the importance of social relationships um and the effects of religious belief for example on stress so mm. so there's a lot of different approaches and a lot of it is going to come down to what's most meaningful for the individual i think you know not everyone is religious not everyone wants to do mindfulness but there are lots of different things to choose there yeah. that would hopefully make, make you know, sense for somebody. It's it, and it makes so much sense, and, and there is such a, a big movement kind of into the me- mindfulness arena and the and the, and meditation. Um, but really, I guess the cure, part of the cure at least, is within us. I mean, a, a major part of the cure and a major part, I guess, too, of the prevention of stress is in us. It's we're kind of already wired in a way to be reactive, but we can also, it sounds like, become very intentional and be, and mindful and, and start some healing from within. Yeah, a big part of my message, I think, is that we need to be active participants in our own health, not just passive recipients of, of health care. And so that's something that as individuals we need to take ownership of but but also in the, the medical system as well i think there you know there's this huge focus on physical drugs and interventions that kind of get doled out to people but i think we, we need to take more account of people as individuals our you know our fears our hopes our memories our experiences our attitudes the research is showing that all of these things make a difference to health because our mental state matters for our physical state you can't separate the two right so I do. I would love to see more research that takes that seriously, <laughs> um, so that we can approach that in an evidence-based way. Because you know, the, the the people who are taking those individual aspects more seriously are alternative therapists, and this is why they can get you know very good responses in in patients because they are they do have those sort of human elements of care, mm-hmm. if you like. Um, but you know, it does worry me because when you have these therapies uh, based on pseudoscientific frameworks then that could encourage people to go down that route of rejecting science and not getting conventional treatment they they need Um, so I I think what we have to do is try and learn from those alternative therapies and learn that one-to-one care and interaction and longer consultation times matter and there are now you know randomized controlled trials showing that so there's a lot of interesting research coming out of Harvard for example showing that patients do better when the therapist is empathic and warm compared to um, cold yeah. and polite, or they do better when the consultations are longer versus shorter. And, and that's completely the opposite of the trend that we're seeing in medical care at the moment, where the, all the focus is on the actual drug that's being prescribed and, you know, staff numbers are being cut, consultation times are being cut. And there's a real, you know, I'm really worried that that could be counterproductive. I think we need to start taking these human elements of care just as seriously mm. as the physical drugs that are being prescribed. No, I, I couldn't agree more, and, and I hear it more and more and more uh, just with my clients, my friends. Uh, it's so real. Dr. Joe Marchant, appreciate your insight on this and your great work on the book Cure, The Science of Mind Over Body. Folks, it's our life, right? We've got to take our lives back and engage that mind of ours, engage the spirit as well. We're a whole being. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back with our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. It is once again time for my favorite part of the show, where we get to speak with Spencer and Jer or no, Spencer and Jason today. Excuse me. It's kind of on autopilot there for a second. Spencer and Jason from BYU Sports Nation. How are you guys doing? Hello there. Oh, How are you? There we are. <laughs> I'm doing well. Uh, you know, it's interesting because baseball just started the other day. And I don't know if you guys talked about this on your show yesterday, but the way I found it was somebody had taken the sketch of Scott Sterling from uh, Studio C and taken the audio from that and put it with uh, Stephen Piscotti getting hit by a baseball three times in three minutes. Yeah, it the edit was perfect. Now, see, and I'm a Cardinals fan, so I was watching that game live as it happened. Wow. And it never even crossed my mind to to do that with the Scott Sterling. So props to whoever did that because that was brilliant. <laughs> I think it, it may have been somebody on ESPN or, yeah, but, oh, my goodness, that's just crazy. That doesn't happen. No, it's it's really, really I mean, it's, you know, luckily he's okay, by the way. I can yeah. report he's fine. But, yeah, I mean, you just think, what are the odds of getting hit three times in three different spots in in the same you know trip around the bases that's oh. the beauty of baseball like when you think you've seen everything then something new happens it's the pure sport i feel like it's the only sport that delivers the oh my goodness i can't believe that happened at least once a year. Exactly. And there have been more baseball games than any other sport because there are 162 yeah. <laughs> for each team every year, yet we still see new things. It's amazing. Yeah. So the first shot, right arm, second shot, left arm as he's sliding into second, and then as he's sliding into home, he gets hit in the head, and that's the one that really worried people. Yeah, I mean, this. The, we were talking about this just briefly. I, I want somebody to try and find the statistics on just how unlikely that is. That 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 would have to be the odds of that actually happening have got to be astronomical. I bet. Hey, I, I want to know because uh, we had a story that we shared earlier about a guy that uh, was duct taped to a yield sign because yeah, he yeah, lost saw, out on a bet. Video. Yeah, I'm just wondering if you guys have had any uh, sports bets that have gone awry like that. Uh, not me. Not that would ever go to that extreme. I think Terry mentioned somebody shaved their head because they lost a bet. Is that true? Yeah, Jerem Jordan is conveniently not here to <laughs> discuss that. Ironically enough, it was on a trip to the Northwest to Portland and Spokane when that happened, and Jerem just landed in Portland last night. Interesting. Yeah. So, so what was the bet that he lost? What's that? What was the bet that he lost? He said that if BYU beat number 2-ranked Gonzaga on their floor on senior night, uh, a few years ago, that he would shave his head. He's like, it's not going to happen. I'll shave my head if BYU wins up there. And then BYU <laughs> did the unthinkable, just like they did this last year, which is why he was like, no, I'm not I'm not putting my hair on the line again. And he was smart because BYU did it again. Well, luckily he didn't say, like, I'll eat my hat or I'll quit my job. Yeah, he that would do that. Yeah. <laughs> He'd take it to his hair. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at this point, with the way BYU has played at Gonzaga, nobody's making any bets anymore with that one because they've won three years in a row up there. Yeah. Right. Is there any fan that thinks BYU can't go to Spokane and win again after three in a row? Yeah, that nobody wants to shave their head, I guess. Hey, what's coming up on your program, you guys? You know, we have a really fascinating and I think um, misunderstood, but 
uh, important subject that we're talking about today. Tanner Mangum, our quarterback at BYU, put himself out publicly uh, saying that he struggles with anxiety and some mental health issues, and it's Mental Health Awareness Week at BYU. And so we're bringing him on the show to discuss why he felt like it was important to do so. And honestly, we feel like he's already helping people because he has such a reach and because he is such a public figure and in a lot of little kids' minds like a superhero. He's helping people, and so we wanted. We're we're discussing. Oh, that's that. great. Not the usual BYU Sports Nation craziness, but you know we feel like this is this is the day to do this. Sure. You know, we're, we're also going to have Dr. Tom Golightly uh, join the program as well, and he is a uh, clinical psychologist on campus that actually helps athletes uh, in situations like this. So he's going to join us uh, just to talk about uh, mental health awareness, but just how prevalent is it. Among athletes, there's some pretty fascinating statistics when you think about it. Wow, interesting. Well, yeah. it sounds yeah. like you've got a couple of exclusives there. That's great. Yeah, really, really interesting stuff. And like I said, we we feel like this is the perfect time to do it because it is Mental Health Awareness Week at BYU. We know that May is Mental Health Awareness Month for the entire United States, but I just I think it's super courageous and really, you know, bravo to Tanner Mangan for doing something like this. And not only posting it publicly, but but coming on the show to talk about his own struggles and and how he deals with that. And, it, I mean, it humanizes someone that otherwise we think look at as like a folk hero within BYU. Well, it sounds like you guys are going to have a great show, so go knock him dead. And uh, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a bet. If Dr. Matt is back on the show tomorrow, I will shave my head. Oh, <laughs> you so already he's know he's gone <laughs> <Yeah>. tomorrow. <laughs> he's just chilling in St. George. You can't somebody make a bet somebody and clip that off and send it yeah. to Matt. He'll drive he'll drive the four hours home, trust me, if he knows that's on the line. Uh oh. Well don't tell him. All right. Have a good show, you guys. We'll Thanks, talk Jeff. to you tomorrow. Thanks. Wow. They just brought up a made a good point. Maybe somebody will send that to Matt Townsend. And I already know I look horrible with a shaved head. So this could really come back to bite me. No, no, no. He loves his vacation days too much. He's not going to get in the car and cut his vacations short. Hey, uh, there's one more sports-related story that we didn't get to. We didn't have time with Spencer and Jason. But uh, the Super Bowl trophy, uh, the Vince Lombardi trophy, had a run-in with a deer that uh, was nearly as improbable as the New England's Patriot the New England Patriots come from behind win over the Atlanta Falcons but it happened Friday night in Maine when a Patriots employee who had the Vince Lombardi trophy in his vehicle struck a deer in Fairfield team spokesman on Saturday confirmed the accident James said the employee was uh, unhurt and the trophy was unscathed the trophy was on display Saturday at the Cross Insurance Center in Bangor Maine as scheduled and it has been traveling around the region to give fans a chance to see it. State Trooper Tyler Maloon gave the team employee a ride after the accident and posted a photo of himself with the trophy on Facebook. A lot of sports stories today. It's not usually the case that we have so many sports stories to talk about. Here is our hero story of the day, and that is not a sports story. A hero saved a young man from being flattened by an L train by jumping onto the tracks and hauling him onto the platform to safety. Newly released footage, video footage shows. Jonathan Kulig, 29, had just gotten off a Manhattan-bound train at the 3rd Avenue station when he saw something fall onto the tracks on the opposite platform. But when he realized it was moving, he jumped down and scooped the barely conscious kid up. 
I didn't think, he told the Post. I just kind of did it. Once back on the platform, Kulig tried to ask the guy what happened, but only got mumbles in response. Other uh, other strap hangers can be heard in the background of the cell phone footage saying he had been staggering around, bumping into things before he ended up on the tracks. Kulig, who works for Con Ed, had gone through the MTA's track safety training program last month, so he was well equipped to make the daring rescue on the rails. I'm not an expert, but I knew enough to keep myself safe, he said. Paramedics took the victim to Lennox Health Plex with non-critical injuries, according to the FDNY. Anyway, that's our hero story of the day.